This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, we've got a bunch of football to talk about today. A full slate of Pac-12 games for the weekend. Uh, Oregon's going to Texas Tech. Oregon State's with the grand reopening of Research Stadium. Uh, we've got great guests on today's show. Anthony Gold, Oregon State wide receiver, will be with us in hour number one. It's going to be great to catch up with Anthony as we do every week and uh, get uh, his perspective on like what was DJ Uyunglele like in the huddle and in the locker room before Oregon State's big game against San Jose State on Saturday. be fun to talk with him about that. Also, uh, you'll hear a conversation between myself and Ryan Thorburn, the beat reporter and reporter, great reporter, used to work in Eugene at the Register Guard. He's now in Casper, Wyoming. He is covering the Wyoming beat. He's going to talk to us a little bit about Texas Tech. He saw him last week in that game against Wyoming. And uh, you'll hear us banter about sort of the state of things, uh, newspapers and otherwise. And That'll happen in hour number two of today's show. Uh, we'll talk about, and I'll deal with Mark Helfrich on today's show. I wrote about him today at johnconzano.com. I still think he's a fascinating study. I think whether you are an Oregon fan or not an Oregon fan, whether you are a Helfrich supporter or not a Helfrich supporter when he was at Oregon, you can't deny that Mark Helfrich had success on the football field. Took Oregon to the national title game. Got a big contract extension, like $17 million extension after taking the Ducks to the title game. Two years later, he was out of work. What happened? What went wrong? And would Mark Helfrich still be the coach at Oregon if he had just handled a couple of little things differently? Remember, we had him on the show all the time, and I don't want to nitpick. Like, there is a line where I accept that public figures need private lives, but I think part of Mark Helfrich's problem was the fact that he never really opened up. He didn't really share himself, and and he wasn't as candid and open as some of the coaches who do a better job working the boosters, uh, the donors, their administration, and frankly, media and the public. And I wonder if Mark Helfrich had handled those things differently, if he would still be the coach at the University of Oregon. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. You can read all about it. Also, Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, will be joining us. Anna will pop in for the 5 at 5. She is all fired up about Thursday night football and the drama going on there. And, oh, by the way, if you're one of these fans out there or media members out there who believe that there should be an asterisk by the Detroit Lions win last night on Thursday night football, give me a break. Yeah, they're without Travis Kelsey. They're without, you know, they're without two key players. I get it. But that's football. You have to line up as the Kansas City Chiefs or the Detroit Lions with whoever you have available uh, on your roster. You don't get to say, well, we didn't have – you know, Travis Kelsey, so we, it wouldn't count in the loss column. Give me a break. That was a great win by Detroit. It was a dominant performance. The Chiefs looked like they're a mess. You know, you've, receivers dropping passes. They were they just looked like a disorganized week one mess. And 
That's on the Chiefs. That should go in the loss column. There's no asterisk there, Mike Tarico. Give me a break. I mean, I think in the end, too, like if you want to play that game, what, the Green Bay Packers get to say all season long, but we didn't have Aaron Rodgers. You know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they, they get to go, well, you know, a couple years ago, we had Tom Brady in his prime. Let's put an asterisk by that. that that's ridiculous. You know, the Angels don't get to go out and go, hey, it doesn't really count as a loss because Shohei's got a ulnar nerve issue and he should be uh, he should have been on the mound today. It was his turn in the rotation. No, you have to play who you have available. The Chiefs did. They lost the game. The Lions beat them. And so the Lions get the win. Let's put that to rest right now. Give me a break. Uh, but I before we get to any of this other stuff, I really wanted to start today's show by talking about what in the world is going on with Oregon State and Washington State. Did you catch the news? Did you hear about the news? Washington State and Oregon State are taking legal action against the Pac-12. They are suing the Pac-12. They want the voting rights, and they want the assets. I told you this was coming. Lawyers are involved now, and the two remaining schools are seeking some clarity. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, our friend, uh, had all the details uh, this morning and broke the news. But, you know, we've talked about this. We knew this was coming. The presidents at Oregon State and Washington State are taking the Pac-12 to court. They are suing. They have named George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, as a defendant. They have named the Pac-12 conference as a defendant. Be clear, they're not trying to sue Oregon and Washington and the Four Corners schools and try to make them, you know, Stanford and Cal, try to make them, you know, not go to the ACC or the Big 12 or the Big 10. They're not doing that. They just want a declaratory judgment from the court regarding the makeup of the board of directors. Now, the Pac-12's got a board meeting scheduled next Wednesday, and Oregon State and Washington State wants the court to, you know, issue an injunction that essentially says, you know, whether or not, you, you know, those other members can come into the board meeting. Because George Klyovkov, I guess, has reached out to several other universities and has told them, hey, there's a board meeting Wednesday, and Oregon State and Washington State are going, well, wait a minute. We're the board members. We are the board. So they're seeking a temporary restraining order to prevent the 10 outgoing members from voting on vital issues until the makeup of the board can be determined. Now, the Cougars and Beavers would also love to have all that money and all the assets that are tied tied to the Pac-12. So it's been a really weird two weeks. Um, you know, it, it, it's come to light that Oregon State and Washington State can't get information from the Pac-12. Uh, media members, myself included, who have requested information from the Pac-12. Uh, it, it's been really difficult to get anything from the conference, and I get it. Like, they're focused on a, on a football season and everything that is ahead, but in the end, I think there is a real problem here that is developed. And Washington State and Oregon State uh, believe that, that they are the board, and they want a court to agree with them. Keep in mind, USC and UCLA left, or at least announced they were leaving the Pac-12 conference you remember, it was like 15, 16 months ago. And when they did that, USC and UCLA's presidents were no longer allowed to come into board meetings and vote on matters as it pertained to the conference. So there's some precedent here for Oregon State and Washington State believing that they are the only two board members. Because if you're leaving and you are, uh, as uh, Oregon State and Washington State, trying to uh, if you're, you're trying to make decisions about the conference moving forward beyond July 1 of 2024 and you are the Pac-2, the last thing you want is this voting block of 10 outgoing schools basically going, hey, you know what? All the assets are split 12 ways.
um, you know, all the the emergency fund gets split 12 ways. Hey, the NCAA tournament units, we're not going to distribute those to the conference. They're going to go to those who earned them. Like, there's just a lot of tentacles to this thing. And if you're an Oregon State fan or a Washington State fan, I think you probably are high-fiving this, um, you know, the presidents right now in this decision because they're taking action. They are finally getting proactive and putting their oxygen mask on and deciding that, you know, they need to get clarity on whether or not they are the board or does uh, do the others do the others get a say in what happens? Um, you know, the board meeting is supposed to be next Wednesday. On Monday, there is a so, you know they're asking for the court to make an issue to issue a declaration on Monday that would essentially rule that Oregon State and Washington State are the board, or at least give some clarity to what is happening on the board front. Uh, this is a very important step for Oregon State and Washington State as they try to unfold or unpack their future, their, you know, their decision and what they're going to do in the future. Um, and look, and I talked about this yesterday. The, the lawyers are now involved. And this is going to be lawyers, and this is going to be accountants, and this is going to be courts. And some of this stuff is not going to be very sexy or exciting to a lot of Pac-12 fans. And I don't know how in the weeds I want to even get on covering this stuff. As I told, you know, I was talking to Oliver Luck, who is consulting with Oregon State and Washington State, and as I told him, I said, look, um, I'm a sports columnist. I love covering games. I love writing about people. I love interviewing people. I love breaking news, of course. This is newsy. This stuff is interesting. But it's not why I got in the business, and I suspect it's not why you're a sports fan. So I think, you know, the, the fans of the 10 other schools, too, I'm not sure how interested or concerned they are with all this. But for Oregon State and Washington State's fan bases, this is huge. This is a big move by the Cougars and the Beavers, naming George Klyovkov the Pac-12 commissioner. And, oh, by the way, should he even be the commissioner? Like, it, should Klyovkov get out of the way at this point? Like, you know, there's some there's some discussion among the schools about, you know, what role he played in the downfall of the conference. And from a procedural or operational standpoint, you need somebody to run the conference as it moves forward. But who is that person? And should it, is George Klyovkov, now that he's been named in a lawsuit, it, by Washington State and Oregon State, is he the best person to lead? Can he lead? Can he effectively lead? And I know what you're saying. You're saying fire the guy. But if you fire him, you got to pay him out. Should he resign? Should he step down? Uh, we'll talk about that, uh, of course, in the coming days. But big development in the Pac-12 world there that I think matters. And, look, I would love to see Oregon and Washington go into the Big Ten and have it work out for them and have them be successful and they look back and go, hey, it was a great move. You know, we went where we thought we belonged. Uh, but I don't think that this story is as black and white as that. I think there's a real good chance that Oregon and Washington go into the Big Ten, they compete for a while, and then college football decides it's going to break away from everything else. And then all the schools, like the top 60 or 40 schools in the country, suddenly rearrange themselves and go, okay, who are we? What do we belong to? Let's get back to regional conferences. And, you know, maybe there's a chance Oregon State, Washington State rejoin Washington and Oregon when that happens. But in order for that to happen, Oregon State and Washington State have got to do some smart things here in the next, you know, two months, really, to position themselves for the next two to five to six years. And I ask people in the industry, I keep saying, is it like a two-year thing? Is it like a five-year thing? Is it like a seven-year thing? I get a little pushback from pe from 
from people when I suggest it could happen like in the next 24 months we could see football break away. They say not maybe not that fast, but it's more like a four, five, six year in the horizon thing. So how does Washington State and Oregon State continue to matter, continue to be relevant, and position themselves well if they aren't well-funded? And that's what this lawsuit is about. It's about voting rights. It's about their uh, ability to... Um, uh, their ability to position themselves in a way that um, is beneficial to them. And the bylaws of the Pac-12 conference seem to indicate that if the conference dissolves, the assets will be split among the 12 schools equally. Well, these are high stakes. Like, the the major strategic and financial issues that are facing this conference really belong in a lot of ways to Oregon State and Washington State because they want they need this entity to be there for them in the next four, five, six years. The others who are departing, you know, I don't know that they care that much. And, and and for some of them, look, you could argue, was it Oregon, was it Washington? Like, I'm on record. Like, I don't begrudge Oregon and Washington for leaving to the Big Ten. They have to do what is best for themselves on some level. And if they really thought that going to the Big Ten Conference is best for themselves, you have to go, okay, that's what I would have done in that position as well. And and uh, I so I don't begrudge them. But I simultaneously look at that and go, okay, was it them? Was it the Arizona schools? Was it TV that ultimately caused the fracture in the Pac-12 conference? Are there other entities that are going to get sued by Washington State and Oregon State eventually? I don't know. And, I, and I'm left kind of looking at the, uh, at the situation going, hey, there's definitely some blood on people's hands here. And to what extent, we will soon find out as people get to post. But again, if you're just tuning in, Washington State and Oregon State are taking legal action against the Pac-12. They have named the Pac-12 Conference and Commissioner George Kiofkoff as defendants in a lawsuit. This is going to uh, Whitman County, Washington Superior Court, and they will try to uh, determine ultimately who has a board seat anymore. Pac-12 Board of Directors has, you know, is it two board seats or is it 12? Uh, there doesn't seem to be an in-between when it comes to to that uh, that question, Keep, stay tuned on that. We'll be all over it next week. Um, uh, but this weekend's games, I want to get to the football. Like last night, we had an NFL game. It, it was probably a stinker of an NFL game. It certainly had some intrigue, but the Kansas City Chiefs just you know did not look like the Chiefs. Still a loss for the Chiefs. Let me be clear. In the end, though, if we're looking at the ability for a college football team to show up in Week Two. Whether you have your starting quarterback available, your starting tight end available, you're not going to get an asterisk in the uh, Pac-12 standings if, you, if you're not playing at full strength tonight or this weekend. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs aren't getting one either. But I want to look at the games themselves just a little bit. And, again, Anthony Gold coming up in the next segment. But if you are a Pac-12 fan, where is the most important game of the weekend in the Pac-12 world? Because there's some big ones. And you can argue it's Nebraska, Colorado, 9 a.m. tomorrow on Fox. Coach Prime's team, week two matchup. I don't think there's a program that has generated more interest in itself than Colorado football has. Now we're, we're finding out that some of their other home dates this season are now officially sold out. Season tickets gone long ago. But single game tickets, standing room only tickets gone for a couple of other games after Colorado's week one win. What happens if they win in week two? Like, are they going to do a stadium expansion that happens, like, in a month? 
uh, like Coach Prime and his team get an opportunity against Nebraska at home, first home game. Fox is going to be the big winner, but um, Colorado's a three-point favorite, and I think that's going to be a big one, of course. Same time, Utah-Baylor on ESPN. Um, Baylor will be without their starting quarterback. He's out. Utah is uh, very deep, very well coached, talented on the defensive side of the ball. I expect them to feast on Baylor. I I I, I think Baylor's going to struggle on the offensive end of the of the field, but um, I think they'll be one dimensional, and I think Utah's going to win this game comfortably. But those are the two big ones in the morning, and then after that, it's Oregon at Texas Tech, 4 p.m. Also on Fox. Very curious to see. Oregon in a hostile environment, how well they play. Dan Lanning, he has had a few opportunities in his early tenure at Oregon to show up for big games. He loses his opener at Georgia. He loses the Washington game. He had a 17-point lead in the fourth quarter against Oregon State. They lost that game. So you could definitely point to some occasions where Oregon has entered games saying, this is a big one, where they haven't, got the great result or haven't got a result at all. 0-3 in those games I mentioned. This is a big one for Lanning. And I think Oregon's got the better players, got the better team. Uh, let's see what they do at Texas Tech. I'm picking them to win 42-20. I don't know what you've, uh, uh, you know, as your prediction, but that's my prediction. Other big games for the Pac-12 Conference, of course, Arizona's at Mississippi State. That one will be uh, on the SEC Network or the Pac-12 Network uh, on the western part of the United States. Mississippi State's really good, 7-1 and one in their last eight home games. Very decent SEC team, and they should hold court in that one. And then also Wisconsin's at Washington State. That's the other game that I'm really paying attention to. Martin Stadium, afternoon kickoff, televised nationally again. Oregon will be going on at the same time, but maybe I'll keep one eye over at Wisconsin and Washington State because I do feel like Washington State's got a puncher's chance in that game to pull off the upset. In fact, I picked it. Washington State is a six-point underdog. I pick them to win the game outright, and they're going to honor Mike Leach. There's going to be a whole bunch of emotion, but I just like what I saw from Washington State in week one. And I think this is a Wisconsin team with a coaching change. Luke Fickle now in it, Wisconsin. They're going to try to be an air raid-style offense. I just don't know if they have the pieces there yet to do that. Uh, Another Pac-12 game later, of course, UC Davis is at Oregon State, 6 o'clock, Pac-12 Network. That should be a fun one. We'll talk to Anthony Gold coming up about that one, about what it'll be like to be in the stadium. And I am dying to know like what DJ was like in the huddle in week one. Anthony was there with him. We'll ask him. Uh, another upset that I've picked, Auburn's at Cal, 7.30 on ESPN tomorrow. I, I, I just have this feeling Cal's going to win that game. I think it's going to be a really close game. Cal's at home. Auburn, feel like a 6-6 six and six team to me. I think Cal's going to beat them. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you got Stanford at USC late, 7.30 on Fox. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Stanford's going to put up a huge fight against USC, but I'm going to tune into that game. I'm interested in it. Troy Taylor in his first year. Stanford, of course, uh, at USC. The, the spread is like 30, 29.5, 30-point spread. So not a lot of people thinking that about big upset things from, from Stanford, but I think if you were a uh, Pac-12 fan, that's the first Pac-12 game of the season. And a real opportunity to tune in and see, like, does a revamped Troy Taylor Stanford team really have a, ch- a chance against Caleb Williams? And by the way, USC didn't look great in week zero on defense. And I was kind of left thinking, gosh, is it just more of the same from last year? Like, it's just going to be Caleb Williams and some explosive offensive uh, firepower 
and maybe just not a whole bunch of uh, defensive theatrics from the Trojans? Or will they be able to, on the defensive side of the ball, win games, stop opponents, and not leave Caleb Williams in this position that he found himself in all too often last year in that he was just having to outscore people? And he can do that. I mean, he proved that he can do that. But I think outside of, like, the Oregon State game, I didn't see USC's defense get talked about a lot. And that Oregon State game, I think, had more to do with Chance Nolan and some strange things that were going on on the offensive side of the ball for the Beavers in that game. So it'll be really interesting for me to see, like, you know, maybe maybe Stanford's getting its biggest test of the year. Can we say that? Because, I mean, excuse me, maybe USC's getting their biggest test of the year. Can we say that, you know, after San Jose State and Nevada? I think Stanford might be the biggest test for them. And, and, and by the way, USC's schedule to start the season, kind of ridiculous. San Jose State, Nevada, Stanford, all at home. Then a bye week. Then they go on the road for two games, Arizona State and then Colorado. So maybe maybe it's week five in Colorado that, you know, we'll all look at and go, hey, that's the big test for USC. But I want to get a peek at them against Stanford in this game. All right, coming up, Anthony Gold will be joining us. He joins us all season long. It is part of an NIL deal he's got with Jamba. Jamba has uh, uh, been kind enough to sponsor a segment, and Anthony's going to come on all all season long to talk about you know what's going on at Oregon State. And Jaden Grant did it last year. We're continuing the tradition with Anthony Gold this year. I'm excited to talk with him, and we got a great show ahead with big guests. You'll also hear from Tyson Alger later in the program. I-5 Corridor will break all the games down. Anna's got the 5 at 5. So settle in. you got the BFT on a Friday. Oregon State will reopen the newly renovated Research Stadium tomorrow against UC Davis. The Beavers will be taking on UC Davis in a game that will kick off at 6 o'clock. You can see it on the Pac-12 Network, or you can see it in person. If you're going to be there at Research Stadium, uh, I want to thank Jamba all season long. They are presenting the opportunity to bring Anthony Gold, wide receiver, Oregon State, on the program. This uh, segment is presented by Jamba. Life is better blended. Anthony, thanks for joining us. I want to ask you, last week you got in the end zone, big touchdown reception, 20,000-plus fans in the stands. i got to ask you, most of our listeners have not scored a touchdown in a college football game. What does that feel like? Oh, uh, yeah, it feels amazing. You know, every time you get in the paint, you can just, you know, feel the the hard work of everything paying off, and you know, you're helping your team get a get a win. So yeah, it feels good scoring. But you know, gotta act professional, and uh, you know, hopefully we we do that a lot this year. Yeah, it's uh, it was neat to see DJ out there, and then also, you know, obviously Aiden Childs got some snaps in a meaningful series, which was good. But give me an idea what DJ was like when you're in the huddle or you're on the field with him because from the press box and even afterwards he looked really calm like unusually calm oh yeah he was you know he's very composed out there and you know i think that that helps everyone cuz you know when you're out there it just feels like practice and you know when you can have that that type of calmness in the huddle and um you know not panic when a play not uh you know go, go to plan um you know, that's, that's just big for, you know, everyone out there on the field and uh, guys on the sideline as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's cool having him back there at the helm, and I think he played a great game uh, this past Saturday. You guys were very businesslike, and uh, you got some you got some veteran players like yourself who have been through some stuff, and obviously the offensive line 
played really well. There was one pass play. I mean, that pass play, DJ said he could have made a sandwich back there. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, definitely. Seeing stuff like that, you know, it's, it's cool to see, especially those guys getting their recognition. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Henry Bloomfield said it himself the other day, um, you know, it's, it's we're getting praised for doing your job. So, you know, I know how those guys feel up there. They're not satisfied with anything. And, um, you know, that's amazing to have on a team, especially down in the trenches. Um, you know, those guys, they're all willing to battle and go to war. So, um, you know, having having that part of our team, you know, I think that's very underrated. And a lot of people are just now starting to see that. It's interesting because I was trying to figure out if it was an advantage for you guys that you had some film from this season on San Jose State. Did did that pay off? Did you see things on film that you were able to to uh, take advantage of in the game? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, we kind of look at it as, um, you know, it's a 50-50 situation. You know, um, they get the first game going into the game, so they, they get most of those first game mistakes out of the way, but we also get film on them. So um, that helped a ton, and, um, you know, that was one of the, the positives we looked at it going into game one was, okay, we know what these guys look like and we know what to expect. So, um, yeah, it definitely helped a lot, and, um, you know, we went out there and they executed, and that's all you can ask for. The, help us out here, nitpick a little bit. When you watch film of game one, you guys win. Obviously, there's nine penalties. Coach Smith and Coach Lindgren are going to look at that stuff and go, hey, we got to clean this up, clean that up. But nitpick it. Um, you know, if you're really being hard on yourselves, it, you know, you look at the score, it's a, it's a blowout. But give us one area that you think you or the offense could really improve with. Um, I think, uh, you know, just hitting on – all the explosive plays that that we call. Um, there was a couple that we had left out there, I feel like, this weekend. Um, but, honestly, I feel like we we all did we all did well. And as, as long as we all continue to do our individual jobs, then um, we should be able to go out there and execute. And especially uh, with the new the new clock, um, you, we, you really noticed that throughout the game, uh, especially the, the style of football we play. So um, I think the tempo has to pick up a little bit. Um, but that's really, I would say, the biggest thing. We just gotta, we gotta pick up the tempo. You know, getting four, four series and a half. You know, it's not, it's not a lot, and it's crazy. But you know, that's just how college football is now. So, um, I'd say that's the biggest thing we have to work on. Yeah, it was interesting because fans, I don't think, understood the clock differences. But a lot of coaches are talking about it. For people who don't know, the NCAA tweaked the rule in the off season. And uh, the clock will no longer stop for officials to reset the chains after you make a first down. The exception comes in the final two minutes of the second and the fourth quarters. But uh, similar to what the NFL does, but it, it shortens the game up a little bit. How much did you notice it, or did the did the first quarter feel like it flew by, or what, what was your feeling on the field? Oh yeah, you definitely notice it. Um, it goes by a lot, and especially you know with a, a run uh, run heavy team like we are. Um, that clock is just tick, 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 tick. So I think just uh, pushing the tempo will help us a lot. Um, and that's something we've all talked about. But you definitely notice it going by. It seemed like the first quarter went by super, super fast. And then you're looking, and it's like, dang, we're already in two-minute two minute mode. Um, so, yeah, it, you definitely notice it. Yeah, and I think they're they're making more time for ads on TV. And some of the people are like, hey, wait a minute. Like, you know, it's just, here we go. Here we go with TV again. Uh, Anthony Gold is our guest, uh, Oregon State wide receiver. Uh, this game this week, you get UC Davis. 
uh, you get the opening of Reister Stadium. Let's start with the stadium. How how big is that for you guys to have your stadium and look around and see people there? You you know what it looks like, but you're going to see it with people. Um, I think you know it's going to be an awesome experience. You know, being being able to play in the first game um, with the new side of Reister Open. Um, it's going to be awesome, and I think it's, it's going to be especially fun for the fans. You know, they they had to sit out a, a whole year um, with only half the stadium. So, you know, having them being able to enjoy that and um, have that, I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to be great for everybody, and it's going to be a great atmosphere. Anthony, the the opponent, UC Davis, yeah, uh, on paper, you know, we've seen some of the Big Sky teams get blown out of the stadium, but... What do you guys, let's focus on you guys. What do you guys need to take care of this week to get what you want out of it? Uh, I think it just, you know, it all comes down to execution. Um, like I said, you know, uh, uh, all 11 of us have to do our individual job, and um, that's, the only, that's the only thing you can ask for is, you know, guys go out there, go out there and do their job, and, you know, when we do that, we execute well, and when you do that, you score points. So um, being able just to execute and score points you know, we do play our play our brand of football, and, you know, we'll, we'll be good offensively. This interview is presented by Jamba. Life is better blended. Do you have a Jamba drink that uh, you like? What are you recommending to our listeners this week? Uh, man, I, I just got on that white gummy not too long ago, so... <laughs> I'll say that white gummy. All right, you try it if you haven't had it. I'm looking it up right now. What? Give me, give me an idea, a scouting report on it. Tastes like a gummy bear. It's like a smoothie. I guess. That's, yeah, it's like a, a uh, gummy bear smoothie. Oh, it's white it's, grape, it's, mm-hmm. peach, pineapple sherbet, vanilla soy milk, orange sherbet, raspberry sherbet, mango lime sherbet. Okay, I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's definitely not bad. Not bad. I like that. All right, listen. Uh, I know a lot of uh, a lot of fans uh, who go to the stadium, listen to the show, and give give uh, Beavers fans who are coming to Racer Stadium on Saturday something to look for. Like, what's one key you would tell family or friends? Like, hey, look for this in the game, or this is something we're trying to do well, or keep an eye on what. Um, I would say definitely if if you're Going to the game, go check out Beaver Street. That's part of the the stadium. That's yep. super cool area. Um, but part of the game, I think just you know, just expect you know us to to do what we do, run the ball, um, take shots down the field, and you know I wouldn't say expect anything different, expect anything um, out of the ordinary from from us. You know, we're we're gonna do what we do. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely just expect the you know us to go out there and. Um, execute and, you know, just guys out there flying around having fun. You know, it's interesting as I see you back there on the punt return. And, you know, little known fact, when I was in community college, I returned punts, okay? I may not look like it today. Okay. But I was the guy that was back there. We went punt block on every punt. And so they told me, catch it or fair catch it and just get what you can. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it's kind of an exhilarating feeling. It gets quiet when the ball's in the air. And, you're back there, but I think there's like an anticipation. I, I give us an idea of what it's back like for you back there, or what you're thinking when you know the other team's lining up to punt or the ball's in the air. So the first thing I, you know, I'm looking at formation. You know, I'm seeing okay from from film. Um, do they have a tendency to punt one way in a formation? Um, second thing I'm I'm just back there thinking about is make good decisions. 
first of all, you know, get get the ball back. That's the most important part of it. Um, and then after that, you know, I'm really just thinking to myself, if I get the ball, do something with it. <laughs> so, you know, I just, you know, it, tracking the ball is not too too difficult for me just because, you know, that's something we rep, uh, you know, a lot during practice. But, you know, I, I really just, you know, I try to get big on myself and just, you know, there might not be too many opportunities to be able to take a punt back. So whatever one you take back, you know, you have to do something with it. So just having that mentality and, you know, just having the mentality of, you know, you might have to take a shot, but that's part of the game. Um, but, yeah, that's what I would say I, I focus on when I'm back there. I love it. Anthony Gold, wish you the best. Thanks for joining us every week. Oh, yes, sir. Thank you. I love that. I love the insight and the analysis from Anthony Gold. So when you see him back there, and keep an eye on this week. Um, you know, UC Davis, they're going to be punting in this game. I, I, I'm expecting some punts. I think Anthony Gold's going to get, get an opportunity to take one uh, potentially to the house, one or two to the house. Anthony Gold, punt return for a touchdown. What odds do I get on that, Steven? Steven's giving me 7-1. to one. I'll take it. You're on. We'll bet Jamba drinks. Seven Jambas you're going to owe me. All right. Uh, uh, appreciate Jamba for their sponsorship of this segment uh, all season long. Anthony Gold will be joining us courtesy of Jamba. Life is better blended. Leave it here. Since I'm making predictions, how about my picks for the Pac-12 games? My final answers next. I want to thank everybody who listens to this radio show, and also I want to thank the people who are reading me now. Uh, I'm writing exclusively, as you know, at johnconzano.com. That was, uh, for anybody who's ever started a small business or gone out on their own or taken a leap of faith or jumped off a diving board into a pool, hopefully feet first, um, <laughs> that's the dad in me. Um, anybody who's ever done anything uh, like that uh, understands that um, what a thrill and how gratifying it is to have people reading me at the new website. And I just, I appreciate all the listeners who have also um, doubled down and decided to grab a free subscription or a paid subscription. I, uh, I really do enjoy that connection with you, uh, you know, that goes beyond the radio show. Uh, I had some readers reach out to me last weekend, and it's the same thing happened last season because what I do every Thursday is I put out my picks for the week. And I don't just put out the picks uh, at johnconzano.com against the spread and with the spread, but I also offer kind of the kickoff times, the TV channels, some additional thoughts, all that stuff in one place. And I've had several people remind me that they refer to that over the weekend. Like, you know, Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, when you go to turn your TV on or find out what time the Nebraska-Colorado game is or on what channel it is, you don't have to go hunting around. Just open up that email that I send you on Thursday, and you've got it all right there, including the point spread and and what I think, and I know I'm referring to that thing throughout the weekend as I'm watching the scores come in and I'm watching the games just to see how accurate I am. And, uh, you know, last week against the spread, I was 6-3. and three. I'll take it. That's a 67% win percentage. I think uh, if I keep that up over the course of the season, I'd be absolutely thrilled. And last season, I came in around 58 59% against the spread. Um, I was 11-1 and one straight up. That's 92%. So uh, if you uh, want to compete against me, you can even go to johnconzano.com and you can put your picks in into the comment section and uh, see how we do against each other. But I want to go back through some of those picks 
I won't go into the full detail, but I kind of want to go through the games again. And we've done this kind of off and on throughout the week, but I'm locking in my final picks. Uh, Nebraska is at Colorado, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning on Fox. And the question has been all week long, Coach Prime asking people, do you believe? That's the question, right? And and I kind of believe, like, I believe more than I did a week ago. But I'm being honest here. Like, I don't fully believe in what Colorado is uh, throwing out onto the field. Like, you know, if you fully believe, you believe that, you know, they're going to be a threat to contend for a conference championship, I don't see it. But I do see dynamic playmakers. I see an offense with Sean Lewis as the play caller that has an idea of what it wants to do. I see a quarterback in Shador Sanders who was much better in week one than I expected him to be. Uh, he uh, he was fantastic. 510 passing yards, four touchdowns. And I see Travis Hunter, who joined us on this show on Pac-12 Media Day. The guy played like 117 snaps. And this was a uh, Colorado team that was very impressive in week one. Now in week two, they're going to be at home against Nebraska in this game. Colorado's a three-point favorite. And I keep bringing this up, but Colorado could not stop TCU running the ball. And Nebraska is going to want to run the ball. So keep an eye on that early in the game. If Nebraska starts to have its way, get up and down the field, 10-play drive, 12-play drive, a lot of rushing yards, a lot of sevens uh, instead of threes. Uh, This could be a tough day for Colorado. But I'm going to pick Colorado right now. Even with the small sample size, I'm going to pick Colorado 28, Nebraska 27. I don't think Colorado's going to cover the three points, basically. And I'm leaving myself a little bit of an out should Nebraska win the game. But I think it's a really close game. I think it's in the high 20s. That's how I see it. Also at 9 a.m. Saturday, tomorrow, ESPN, Utah is at Baylor. And uh, I all season long, I thought this would be a tough one for Utah. I'm, I'm backing off that now. I see Utah's favored by 7.5 points. I think they're going to win it by 10. I think they'll cover. I like Utah 34, Baylor 24. Tulsa's at, at Washington, 2 p.m. game Saturday, Pac-12 Network. All due respect to Tulsa, but this game's going to be over by halftime. I think Washington could put a 50-burger up on Tulsa. I'm going to leave it a little shy of that. I'm going to say Washington 49, Tulsa 14. Uh, Washington's a 34-point favorite. I think they will cover. Um, Tulsa played well last week, but they were playing against Arkansas Pine Bluff. The Huskies are not Arkansas Pine Bluff. Washington wins big. Uh, Oregon plays Texas Tech tomorrow, 4 p.m. Fox, I will be in Lubbock for this game. And you can get the full game coverage, photo gallery, my column, my thoughts off the game again at johnconzano.com. But uh, it goes back to what Bruce Barnum said earlier in the week. You know, like, Oregon's a a six-and-a-half-point favorite. I think Oregon's going to win big. Bruce Barnum said double digits. Bruce Barnum said he felt like Bo Nix would be on the sideline start of the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, laughing, and and we'd see some Ty Thompson. Uh, I I think Bruce Barnum knows what he's talking about. Uh, I don't have a lot of intel on Oregon. I, I don't know you can glean much from 81-7 to against a uh, Big Sky Conference team, but I think the Red Raiders have some problems, and I like Oregon, especially Oregon's physicality. I think Oregon wins big. I Oregon by three touchdowns or more against Texas Tech. Arizona's at Mississippi State in the 4:30 game, and by the way, this is where the Pac-12's win streak ends, because at this point, the Pac-12 conference should be what 17 and 0 to start the season. When when that Arizona Mississippi State game is about you know after the Oregon games, Oregon game ends, it'll be about the fourth quarter of the Arizona Mississippi State game. That's going to be the Pac-12's first loss 
of the season, which is remarkable. So I think they're going to start 17-0. and Arizona's going to score some points in this game. Some people don't think so. I do. I think they'll get to like 24 or 27. But Mississippi State is going to be too much for them at home. I have it 38-27. Mississippi State covers the nine-point spread. UCLA at San Diego State, 430 on CBS. Chip Kelly will rotate his quarterbacks, Ethan Garbers and Dante Moore. They both played in the uh, season opening win. Neither one of them was flawless. I think Moore's got more upside, but he also threw an interception. Garbers threw two interceptions. So I think Chip Kelly's playing a little wait and see here, figuring out who his starting quarterback is. But San Diego State has been a mystery to me. They, they have struggled to get production in the passing game. They've played two games. They have a combined 251 passing yards. The Bruins are going to win, and I think they will gently cover the spread. 35-20. Spread's 14.5, so gently cover the spread. Wisconsin at Washington State, 4.30 on ABC tomorrow. Game will be at Martin Stadium. This is the game. This is the one. Sneaky good upset pick. And I don't think I'm alone in picking one, picking this game as an upset. But Wisconsin's a six-point favorite on the road in the Palouse. Long way to go for a game against a team that I think is going to be locked in and highly motivated and pretty good defensively. I think Wisconsin will get to about 21 points, and that's the number. If Washington State can score more than 21, they're going to win this game. I think it's 27-21. I think Washington State covers. Even with the six, I think they win the game outright. UC Davis at Oregon State, 6 o'clock tomorrow on the Pac-12 Networks. The official grand reopening of Research Stadium, the west side of the stadium. The finest stadium in the Pac-12 conference, we're being told. I think this is going to be a lot of emotion, great celebration. It'll be nice to see fans inside Research Stadium. I think it's going to be a big party, and I'm curious to get the feedback on Monday. If you're going to the game, I want you to call in on Monday. Tell us, you know, kind of what the stadium is about, what your impressions were. You sat on the new side, the old side, walked around, ate food. I want to know. Like, give us kind of the lay of the land on Monday's show. But Oregon State I thought was really good last Sunday in week one. They subdued San Jose State. It's the best way to put it. They just subdued them. And DJ Uyangalele was very good. And I expect more of that against UC Davis and Dan Hawkins. Dan Hawkins, the former Willamette University coach, is now the coach at UC Davis. He's been at Boise State in Colorado, but uh, he is now at UC Davis. They're well coached, but they're in over their heads on this one. There's no line on the game, but I think it'll be Oregon State 55, UC Davis 10. Auburn goes to Cal, 7.30 tomorrow night on ESPN. Now, when the schedule came out, I circled this game, and I've talked about this before. Justin Wilcox wins a game every season that nobody else sees coming. This is the game. I like what the new offensive coordinator at Cal did in the season opening win. They scored 58 points against North Texas. That was the most points ever scored by a Wilcox coach team at Cal. I am not sold on Auburn. I think they're very so-so. For me, they're like a six-win team, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dance out on a limb here, and I'm going to pick Cal as the outright winner. They are a six-and-a-half-point underdog. They're going to win the game. I have it 31-30, Cal. Oklahoma State is at Arizona State, 7-30 tomorrow on FS1. I have not been impressed with Arizona State. I wanted to see more last week. They played Southern Utah. I was expecting big things from them. Didn't happen. And so, uh, you know, it's not going to get easier here against a Big 12 opponent, even though they're at home. Um, I think Oklahoma State is uh, going to win the game. I think they're going to cover the three-point spread. I like Oklahoma State to win that one. 
Stanford's at USC in the night night nightcap. I liked what I saw from Troy Taylor in his first game, season opening win against Hawaii. They look better. Stanford looks better. But they're not USC better, right? They can't go on the road, I don't think, against the number six team in America and pull off the upset. I didn't like uh, the mental lapses that USC has had in in their games. They, uh, you know, same thing as last year. They just have some mental lapses. But their offense is so blasted good, I think they're just going to outscore Stanford in this game. I have it USC 49, Stanford 17. Better performance from Stanford and uh, won't be surprised if there's some style points late in that one. All right, we got a great hour number two coming up. You can tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Give me your picks for the weekend or go to johnconzano.com and go into the, uh, the week two uh, post that I put up, picking the week two winners, posted it yesterday. And give me your picks in the comment section. But coming up in hour number two, we're going to have a conversation with Ryan Thorburn. He covers Wyoming football. He got a good look at Texas Tech last week as Wyoming upset Tech. And Wyoming is also playing Portland State. Now, Thorburn and I, he wanted to do a podcast with me for his own podcast. And I said, what the hell, let's do it. But we made it kind of a conversation. So you will hear that joint conversation coming up. Plus... I deal with good questions and bad questions. Also, the looming Mark Helfrich question. He'll be on the call in Lubbock on Oregon's Fox telecast of the Oregon-Texas Tech game. How weird will that be? Coming up in Hour 3, Anna will join us for the 5 at 5. And Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, will talk more about Oregon, Oregon State, and the college football weekend. we got a great show ahead. Leave it here. Well, you get to hear me interview people all the time on this show. It's one of my favorite parts of the radio show is interviewing people, uh, asking questions. You know, we talked about this earlier in the week. Mike Leach, the Washington State coach and Mississippi State coach. I just liked having him on because we talked about everything but football. Um, I do interviews on other people's shows all the time. I'll go on with Seattle Radio or Salt Lake City Radio, most frequently Phoenix Radio sometimes, or the Bay Area. Uh, and I also get invited on to podcasts. And I thought it would be a really interesting listen to let you eavesdrop on an interview that I did earlier this week with Ryan Thorburn, who works in Wyoming, and he covers uh, Cowboys football. As you know, uh, Portland State going to Laramie to play Wyoming. And, oh, by the way, Wyoming just coming off of a victory, an upset victory, over Texas Tech, who happens to be hosting Oregon this weekend as well. So tomorrow you're going to have Portland State at Wyoming, and you're going to have Oregon at Texas Tech. And, oh, by the way, this is a four-team tournament. And uh, got me thinking about point differential. Oregon probably win that one. Uh, but I wanted you to be able to hear some of the conversation. Uh, Ryan Thorburn, formerly of the Eugene Register Guard, he used to cover Oregon, talking with me about the Wyoming-Portland State Texas Tech, Oregon Quartet. Here's that conversation. All right, let's roll. Yeah, I think Craig Bowl is concerned about Wyoming having a major letdown this week. Obviously, double overtime. They stunned Texas Tech. They emptied the tank. Their quarterback, Andrew Peasley, who's from LaGrange, Oregon, by the way, uh, is battered and bruised and you know came up big against opposite Tyler Shuck last week. But you know, Craig Bull has a history of struggling to beat FCS teams. It's usually a grinder. 
you know, they squeaked one out against a good Montana State team a couple years ago on a field goal. So I think it's going to be a lot more competitive than that score would indicate, that 81-7 score. And, uh, you know, I'm actually I'm actually looking forward to see how Wyoming responds because, you know, this roller coaster of college football, you know, anything can happen as Wyoming showed last week. And I thought Bull had a good quote saying, uh, telling the guys, you know, it's not a long way from the penthouse to the outhouse here if you don't get it together. Yeah, it, it it's so true in college football too. And, you know, everyone's focused on the transfer portal and NIL and how it can matter. And I think in a lot of ways it's become an equalizer for some programs and it has accentuated the differences between the levels. So I'll be really curious to see can Portland State athletically play. They could not play with Oregon. Can they play with Wyoming? Okay, and so, you know, I think we all expect that that's a step down. But I think the bigger thing for Portland State is they want to be healthy. They want to be healthy for the Big Sky Conference uh, opponents. And, you know, and, and there could be a letdown from the Wyoming standpoint. I, but I don't know. Once you get a win like that in the bank, you, you tend to think that kids get excited about being at practice. It, of course, there's some human nature involved, but there's a lot at stake for Wyoming this week. Uh, you know, and they have to make that week one upset of Texas Tech really matter by winning in week two. Yeah, and I think – to your point about Oregon being vanilla, I think Texas Tech had to, they had to show what they had. I mean, they had to try to win that game and they couldn't quite pull it off. I mentioned Tyler Shuck. I covered at Oregon when he was Justin Herbert's backup. And then the weird, bizarre 2020 season, he finally got his shot. They win the Pac-12, but Mario Cristobal was kind of tinkering with him at the end of the year and putting Anthony Brown in. You know, I think Tyler maybe was a little bit embarrassed in the Fiesta Bowl going home to Phoenix, and he wasn't, and he's switching series with Anthony Brown and ends up in Lubbock, and a few years later, they're hosting Oregon. Uh, what are you expecting in that game? Because I think Wyoming fans would probably like to see Texas Tech win just to uh, improve their strength of schedule dramatically there. Yeah, I, I asked Bruce Barnum about that, and it was he had a great response. I mean... He said that uh, he felt like Oregon would blow him out, and and that Oregon was just better. And he pointed to that point, you know, to the fact that Oregon didn't have to show anything. Texas Tech does not know what to prepare for. Oregon's seen what Texas Tech can do, knows who they are. Of course, there's a road environment involved, and you always kind of wonder about kids going on the road, especially early in the season, how they'll respond. But Bruce Barnum told me that he thought that uh, Bo Nix would be out of the game in the fourth quarter and smiling on the sideline. He, he said he expects that kind of outcome. He also thought Oregon was more physical than he expected them to be. He thought they were a finesse team. He said he knew that they were fast, maybe the fastest team in the country. But he said that the physicality is what impressed him most. I got to ask you, like you saw Texas Tech and you saw Tyler play. I mean, is, that, is he a guy that Oregon needs to worry about? I think so, just because, you know, he's pretty poised and, and he has some dynamic players on his side of the ball. You know, they were out to a 17-0 lead. I think Wyoming actually has, you know, maybe the best defense in the Mountain West and they had the altitude and the crowd. And and for whatever reason, Texas Tech just lost steam. But he came up big at the end of the game, tied it up. Uh, they actually took the lead in the second overtime before Peasley's heroics. So, I think he's a good player. I, I don't think he's on the level of Bo Nix. So uh, to your point, I think or there is a chance Bo Nix, you know, has a hat on backwards at the end of this game. And, and the Red Raiders, who really were so excited about this season, I don't think they overlooked Wyoming, but obviously they've had Oregon, 
in their crosshairs. If they get off to an 0-2 start, which they're favored to do now, that's that's a huge disappointment down there because they really thought you're reading their clippings that they could be the TCU of this year, and that that doesn't look like the case right now. Yeah, I also think you know you you brought up Laramie. I I've never been there, and I've heard about the altitude and the fans and how difficult it is. And I'm trying to wrap my head around what role that played in the game for Texas Tech. Yeah, I I said my three keys to the game. I I actually nailed it for once. I'm off to a good start. I said <laughs> Peasley had to come up big. The defensive line had to win their matchup because I think Texas Tech's O line is still somewhat of a weakness, and I said if they make it a fourth quarter game see how the red raiders handle the pressure and uh you know wyoming got it done so you know i have a guest bedroom i live in laramie john so i think utah <laughs> comes out here in a couple of years you'll have to you check that one out awesome awesome so uh we'll get into the pac-12 because i think it's loaded and and just the future of what's going on there but before we get into that i know that you have a new column about mike leach uh, on your website, johnconzano.com. Speaking of weird coincidences between these teams, you know, obviously uh, Leach was uh, at Washington State for a long time, but before that at Texas Tech, you know, he would call you on your radio show all the time on his walks and do give you some funny stories. And he's from Wyoming and he, you know, often texted Craig Bowl and said he was rooting for the Cowboys and he's still a Cody guy at heart. Unfortunately, we lost coach leach this offseason but what do you think you would think about this oregon texas tech matchup yeah. probably a rare time you would root for oregon yeah there you go i i, I think <laughs> look he was always he was always so interesting to talk with because anytime i tried to talk about football he would steer it towards you know whatever else the lunar landing or ufos or in and out burger is it overrated or why um why everybody should learn to shoot a gun or why he would never want to be president because the hardest part of being president is getting the job. And then once you get it, you know, it'd be cool because you could, you could go do a lot of things, but who wants that job, you know? So he always talked about everything else. And I asked Chris Peterson, the Washington coach about that this week. And he said, even as they talked over the years, he said, you know, Peterson would want to talk football because he was fascinated by Leach's offense. And he, he said, he always looked across and thought, man, it would be really fun to run an offense like that. Like, my offense isn't like that, and I don't know that. And Mike, you know, Mike invented that, or parts of it. And Peterson said that they always ended up talking about canoes and whatever else. Like, where do you buy a canoe, you know, and, and where do you get the best canoe? And I just thought that was really interesting that he kind of steered away from football. But his upbringing in Wyoming came up on my show a lot. You know, he talked about his dad, and I think his dad worked as a ranger or a forest park person and he was in the outdoors a lot and he had a great love for it and and then he talked uh, obviously about you know the fact that he didn't have that foot, formal football upbringing you know he was he had a law degree from Pepperdine played rugby at BYU and I think a lot of that factored into how Mike Leach coached he was outside the box he did weird things different things and and you know opponents had to drop nine players into coverage against him and and so uh, he just created a lot of thinking that hadn't existed in football before. So I think, you know, he'd probably, I think in his heart, he'd root for Oregon because I think there were some bad feelings at Texas Tech. But I saw Texas Tech, you know, they're going to honor him in a couple weeks at a home game. They're going to put him in their Hall of Fame. He's their winningest coach ever. He did things for Texas Tech and Washington State that they had never done before. He won 11 games at Washington State. I mean, 
uh, and had such an impact. But, um, you know, I wrote about him because it, it was true. He would call at like midnight, 1 a.m., or he'd text. I got a FaceTime from him one night on a game night. It was after the game, and he had a glass of whiskey in his hand and just checking in to see how the Pac-12's doing. And he was just uh, re- really, really a different guy. You know, you get a FaceTime from somebody you're not expecting, and you're like, do I answer it? You know, what am I wearing? You know, and uh, I just, I answered. I went into the other room. My wife and I were watching TV, and I went into the other room, and I answered it, and here's Mike Leach having a whiskey and wanting to know what the Pac-12 looks like. He was coaching at Mississippi State at the time. And so I think he'd probably root for Oregon, but I think he would have um, probably talk more about the offenses, Bo Nix, and what he tries to do on offense. I think down deep, I, Leach never said this publicly, but he told me this privately, and I think I can say it now. He always wondered what he would have done with players like Oregon gets or USC. And he meant no disrespect to Washington State or Mississippi State. Those were the schools that hired him and bet on him. But he told me once of Oregon, he said, you know, I beat him six times in a row with my guys. What would I do with their guys? And I think there was some truth in that, that he always kind of wondered, you know, if he could get a school like that to hire him and they would never look at him. I would always, I would ask the school, you know, any chance you're looking at Mike Leach as they're going to hire you know, Willie Taggart or Mario Cristobal, and they just never gave him the time of day. But I, I just think that's one of the things we never got to see. You know, there was the flirtation with Tennessee that, that didn't come to fruition. What would he have done if you would have give, put him in a prime job where he could really recruit? And it, I think it would have been interesting. Yeah, I think some Wyoming fans were wondering, like, once he retires from Mississippi State, would he consider – his last hurrah coaching Wyoming um, because Craig Bull said that, you know, when Leach brought the Cougars to War Memorial Stadium in 2018, which was the uh, Minshew mania year for the opener that he asked Craig, if he could speak to the Wyoming Cowboys before the game and give them a pep talk. And of course, (laughs) Craig Bull, an old school coach, like, hell no, you're not talking to my team. I think now with what happened to Mike, I think Craig's probably, kicking himself a little bit like I should have let him talk to my team, you know, cause he's such a unique guy and it would have been about inspiration, not about, you know, the game plan or anything like well, that. Por- but- you know, Portland state went to Pullman in 2015 and beat Mike Leach. And I'll never forget after that game, you know, you expect Mike Leach is going to be mad. And, you know, in the days after that game, I talked to him and he said, you tell that Bruce Barnum, he's a hell of a chess player. Privately, not that public thing where we all go, yes, he's paying respect publicly. It's the right thing to say, right thing to do. But privately, he was like, tell Bruce Barnum that he's a hell of a chess player. Like that was, he was giving credit to the Portland State coach for, for outplaying him. So speaking of Leach and Minshew and Pullman, that year I got to cover the Oregon at Washington State game, which is the only time game day has been to Pullman. Uh, Washington State won the game. It was a wild scene from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. the next day with the fireball shots and the celebration and all that stuff that their fans do. They have a great fan base. Oregon State has a great fan base. And now you've covered realignment like no one else. First of all, I'm saddened by what's happened. I'm so lucky to have covered the Pac-12 at the end there for the Register Guard for eight seasons. I thought it was the perfect conference, John. I mean, two Arizona schools, two Southern California schools, two Bay Area, Oregon, 
Washington. It was a great conference, and now it's crumbled. Um, I guess my main question is for Oregon State and Washington State, who just blew out Mountain West opponents on the road, what's next for them? Is it Mountain West? Is it some sort of merger, independence? What can they do? Well, you hit on something there. I think there's sadness across the footprint, and it's a weird season this year because nobody quite knows how to feel about it. You go to I was in Salt Lake City for the Thursday night game where Salt, you know, they opened their season against Florida and the Utah fans had feelings. They don't want to go to the Big 12. Like, yes, they'll take it because it's an a viable option, but Utah was doing pretty good in the Pac-12. Like this the conference had been very good to Utah, and so there was some real feelings about that. And I think even Oregon and Washington fans understand like on one hand they're going to the big 10 they they believe football is going in that direction they it was a decision that was made probably thinking about 10 years into the future where do you need to be not two years into the future and but i still think that there was some real mixed feelings and i think it had there been better leadership with larry scott the pac-12 commissioner and better leadership with george klyovkov his successor and better leadership with those presidents and chancellors they would never have ended up in this position you know, I reported that ESPN offered them $30 million in October per school. They should have taken it, you know, they or they should have counter-offered with a reasonable counter. They came back at $50 million and walked away and walked over to the Big 12 and said, all right, we'll give you our money. And there went the money. And so the Apple deal that eventually materialized, you know, had too much risk for a school like Oregon that everybody else was willing to bet on themselves and I think probably would have been okay. But still, it would have felt like, a, I think, of a bit of a Band-Aid. So now you're right. You've got this weird season. Oregon State has a really good team. They are defensively terrific. Offensively, they are physical. DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback from transfer from Clemson, played his first game. You know, three passing touchdowns, two running touchdowns against San Jose State. And I think the best uh, way I could describe that game was that they just subdued San Jose State. I mean, on both sides of the ball. Like San Jose State just looked like they were ineffective. They were just there. They were, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a game really. And and the, you know, it was really interesting to watch that. I think Oregon State's going to play with a chip on their shoulder this season. So in the short term, keep an eye on Oregon State as an outlier to get to Las Vegas and and make a run at winning the conference because I think it mean a lot to the program, a lot to the players and the coaching staff, maybe more so than anybody else in the conference, to get there and win it and demonstrate that they belonged in a Power 5 conference because they are currently not in one. Now, to answer the big-picture question, the Pac-12 is now dissolved down to the Pac-4 and now the Pac-2, and Oregon State and Washington State have their lawyers busy trying to unpack what assets are there. You know, they have NCAA tournament revenues that stay with the conference, not the individual schools that earned them. They stay for six years. There's like 50 to $70 million in payouts coming on that front. It's too much to walk away from. Even if they are a two-team conference, the NCAA says you can go have a two-year grace period to get back to eight. Do they take it of that two-year grace period and just say, hey, we're going to live as uh, more or less independence, the Pac-2, for a couple years? And then wait for buyouts in the Mountain West Conference that are more reasonable, that you know would not require um, you know a thirty-four million dollar exit fee, or do they try to do a reverse merger with the Mountain West Conference? I spoke with Gloria Navarez at the San Jose State Oregon State game on Sunday, and you know she just said those two schools have a lot to unpack, and 
I do think there's an appetite, as I call around the Mountain West, there is an appetite for some of the members to go belong to something not called the Mountain West that they think is a little bit of an upgrade because it's just a brand difference. It's not a huge step up. I mean, the Pac-12 is a battered brand. But I don't think Oregon State Washington State want the um, appearance that they have been relegated to the Mountain West. So I, I think there's a real allergy right now for them just joining the Mountain West Conference, like a lot of people think. And, and there's no financial sense in it. Like, the NCAA tournament revenue is there. There's an emergency fund that's in the conference that may have 20 or $30 million in it. There's also an agreement between the college football playoff and the Pac-12 for equivalency payments for the Rose Bowl. Because the Rose Bowl became part of the playoff. So you lost the Rose Bowl, but the uh, college football playoff is going to pay the Pac-12 $50 million this year. They'll make another payment of $50 million next year, and then a final payment of $50 million in 2025. So there's $100 million in that alone. And big questions about whether that belongs to the conference or the 12 members who negotiated it. So I think we're going to see lawyers in the short term and more lawyers as Washington State and Oregon State try to unpack it. And then I won't be surprised if their, their uh, intention is just to say, we're rebuilding this thing. Well, that's interesting because I think obviously Wyoming's main concern would be if they rebuilt the Pac-12 and obviously Wyoming did not get an invitation there. It's the Boise States, Fresno States, uh, maybe some American teams, whatever, um, you know, the bigger brands. Uh, I think that's a concern at Wyoming. But, uh, you know, I, I've wrote a call on the best thing Wyoming could do because it seems like you know, the hotter you are, the more attractive you are. Stanford five years ago would probably be in the Big Ten. Uh, you know, Wyoming just needs to win the Mountain West and, and get that brand. They have a brand. They just don't have any population. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's that's what you can control, right? And I think, yeah. I, and I, I told this to people at Boise State, and I think same goes for Corvallis and Pullman. It's not like you're going to change the media market overnight. You're not going to double your population. You're not going to add a bunch of TV households. Um, you know, and frankly, Oregon's a great example. Like, they've got the same media market as Oregon State. They have the exact same demographic, media market, geography. So why is Oregon valuable to the Big Ten and Oregon State valuable to almost nobody right now in the Power Five, right? It's because of Phil Knight's investment and the brand building that Oregon has done over 20 years. And so I think Oregon State knows that, that, you know, they have a 10-win season under their belt. They've got... Research Stadium might be the best stadium in the Pac-12 right now because of the improvements they've made. It's fantastic. But they've got to go out and continue to invest regardless of where they end up. They have to continue to invest in football at a level that builds their brand over the next two or three years and then positions themselves for that day that Chip Kelly is predicting that you know when football breaks away and becomes its own thing, that that entity goes, hey, we have to have Oregon State, or we have to have Oregon State and Washington State. That's my conversation with Ryan Thorburn of the Casper Star Tribune, the Pokecast. Ryan Thorburn, formerly of the Eugene Register Guard. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. I've been to a lot of news conferences over the years covering sports. I've been in a lot of press game, press conferences, news conferences, whatever you want to call them, post-game news conferences, locker room settings. I've interviewed people in a variety of capacities, and including when I was covering the NFL. I interviewed Terrell Owens, T.O., one time uh, as we walked to his car at, outside of uh, Candlestick Park, and he was leaving the stadium. It was a great interview. 
Uh, Charlie Garner did the same thing. He was leaving the locker room. I walked with him all the way to his car. Great interview. You get you get people out of that news conference setting, you get better answers. Um, also, when you're in that news conference setting, you've got TV, you've got radio, you have other print reporters who are all standing in proximity getting the same answer that you're getting. There's like four or five cameras trained on the subject minimally. And a great example of that came last Sunday at Spartan Stadium in San Jose in the post-game news conference for Oregon State. Now, I sometimes don't like even participating in the post-game news conference, in part because any question that I ask, that answer is then going to be broadcast on TV and radio and everywhere else, and I kind of want my questions and the answers to it to be um, specific and unique to my content. And it's why I will often pull a subject aside. Uh, DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback at Oregon State, he did an interview in front of like the TV cameras and the radio, and then I talked with him one-on-one outside the locker room. And, and I think I got better stuff from him outside the locker room because I had uh, you know, a more uh, candid interview. It's just a better setting when... When any anytime there's a TV camera around, you know you pull somebody pulls out a camera and starts shooting, the subject automatically goes, "Okay, uh, this is a little more tense." It just changes kind of the temperature of the room. Anytime there's a TV camera there, nothing personal to my TV friends, but I often don't ask a question in that setting for that very reason. Now I asked Jonathan Smith a question in Sunday's news conference about what you know what was keeping him up at night before the game. And I used it in my column, but the bulk of my column reported as DJ Uyunglele left the field and I walked with him from the field, up the ramp, by all the fans, the Oregon State fans who were, you know, reaching over the railing and trying to slap his shoulder pads or give him a high five and they were calling out his name. And it just struck me how calm he was. He wasn't, like, bouncing along there. He wasn't giddy. He wasn't stopping to hug, like, 14 people. He was just kind of like, you know, I, I wrote that he was like a yoga instructor who was knocking off work, rolled up the mat, and was going home for the day. He was just very calm. That was a surreal setting. And I thought it was a really interesting look or glimpse into kind of his psyche and the fact that, like, this was no big deal for him. Five touchdowns, no big deal. This wasn't like DJ, you know, finishing a marathon. This was like, you know, he just ran 100 meters and he's going to have to run 100 meters next week. And, this was no big deal. Uh, nothing was a big deal to him on Sunday, which was really impressive. And so I, I thought that walk captured it. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit here, though, about the questions that are asked in a news conference setting. Because I think there are good questions. I even think there are bad questions. But I don't think there are wasted questions. And I'm going to give you an example of that because uh, I think all three of those were on display in week one. First, I'm going to give you a good question. Good, solid question came in the news conference, uh, I believe it was Monday's news conference, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach. He was asked about kind of the environment in Lubbock, Texas. The heat, can he do anything to prepare? It's a good, solid question because it's, it's something that's been on my mind. You mentioned tough environment, also the, the temperature down there. I'm wondering if there are any things you're going to do to kind of try to simulate the sound and also the, the heat. Yeah, well, I mean, there's not a lot I can do for the heat. We're not going to make the word the guys wear parkas out to practice or anything like that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, good, right? Good. We want a tough environment. We want to go to a place that's going to be challenging. Like, that's that's what's exciting about college football. When you get to go to a place where you know the fans are going to care, 6 p.m., I think they're going to be pretty amped up. Um, you know, that's exciting for us. That's the, that's the kind of environments we want to play in. 
Um, beyond us preparing, that's all we got to do. This is a good question for a number of reasons. Number one, the reporter was listening to Lanning because he said, as you referenced or as you mentioned the environment. So it's a follow-up question to something that Lanning had said earlier in the news conference. So anytime a reporter is listening, that's a good question. Because listeners listen, right? You listen as a listener of this radio show. And if I don't ask the follow-up question that you are in your mind asking about, then we're all we're doing is we're listening to an interview where, like, you know, we all have seen interviews where the reporter or the person asking the questions is just reading questions. That's not a good interview. That's, uh, you know, that's like somebody putting a ball on a tee and saying, well, isn't that like hitting pitching? No, it's not. Um, all right, so I thought it was a good question for that reason, and also it was a good question because it gave Landing an opportunity to kind of talk about the environment and the fact that you can't really prepare for it in Eugene. I think that's interesting. That's a good, solid question. Uh, and another example of really good question asking came in the wake of Wyoming's upset win in double overtime over Texas Tech on Saturday. Wyoming's uh, quarterback, who, by the way, is from LeGrand, Andrew Peasley, had just uh, engineered some heroics, and Wyoming is walking off an upset double overtime winner over Texas Tech program that thought it was going to go in there and boat race Wyoming. Uh, the altitude became a problem. Wyoming's defense became a problem. And in the end, the deep end of the pool became a problem. I'm going to let you hear the play-by-play call of the exciting finish. And then the sideline reporter who grabs Peasley as he's on the field just amid the celebration, and just asks a great question, kind of sets him up for what is a fantastic answer. Stays in! The point is good! Wyoming wins it! To get that Yeah, man. Our end of this game was just take him to the deep end of the pool, and they're going to fall. That's exactly what we did. Just a fantastic answer from Paisley. Captures the emotion of the moment. Take him to the deep end of the pool. He said they're going to fall through. I think he meant they're going to drown. But regardless, Wyoming wins the game. You can hear the emotion from Paisley. Sideline reporter, high five there. Didn't get too complicated. Take us through that. Um, it it just provided great emotion. And anytime somebody's got emotion and they're part of an interview, whether it is uh, they're sad, happy, thrilled, whatever the emotion is, it ends up being uh, kind of a cool thing and a and a valuable moment that could be shared on television, radio, whatnot. Emotion's good. Emotion wins. That's what we're looking for, right? That's why, that's why, in part, I don't like sometimes they do like a cooling off period. I don't like that sometimes because the cooling off period, like, I, I don't necessarily want somebody angry, but the cooling off period after a big win doesn't help anybody. The cooling off period, like, to capture that excitement, that emotion, that jubilation, too much of the emotions lost when you wait 5, 10, 15 minutes. Okay, cooling off period, go to the locker room, everybody shower, then come out. You really start to lose it, and you kind of get that drone-like interview afterwards. So really good job by the sideline reporter there asking a question. All right, um, so we've had, like, good solid question in the news conference. We've had great post-game question there by the sideline reporter. I'm going to give you an example of how a bad question can even be good. Reporter in the Saturday news conference of the Oregon-Portland State game. This Again, it was an 81-7 to win by Oregon. The focus and the questions I would have thought would have been a lot about that day and how Dan Lanning managed the roster and, you know, did he feel bad for Portland State? 
Um, did he take the foot off the gas? All that stuff. Instead, a reporter tried to look forward. Dirty little secret. Sometimes a beat reporter will do this because it saves them making a phone call on Monday or having to go to practice, and it gives them a head start on trying to, like, you know, get something in print about next week's game. So they'll try to slip in a question about next week's opponent. And uh, this happened because there's a Monday news conference anyway where you could ask this. But on Saturday, this question was asked in the Oregon Ducks uh, news conference minutes after they beat Portland State. The question's about, uh, obviously, Tyler Shuck, the former Oregon quarterback who is now at Texas Tech. And it's a little bit of a weird question. It's a bad question, but uh, but with one caveat, I'm going to say this. Like, I've asked bad questions, too, and sometimes a bad question can end up a good question, and I think this is an example of it. And you guys are in a really unique position when it comes to next week and that you're playing a former starter. All right, it wasn't under this staff, but you guys have a lot of proprietary information beyond just game film, things like RPMs and all the stuff that you can measure from practice. RPMs. RPMs of passing, you know, from the various different metrics from Chuck, from those. I don't know what RPM, what you mean? How fast the, how fast the ball releases. I don't know if we measure that at practice. Well, Nate Costa used to. They used I got to you. Things that did. I'll have to call him. File somewhere. Someone's got it. I haven't looked at how fast he throws the ball. But he's, you know what? I know this. He's a winner. I'll let you ask the rest of your question, or if there is a question. That's the point. That how much does any of those things help? But if you don't even know they exist, clearly not a lot. Just Now, I don't know what RPMs are when it comes to football. I think he's trying to talk about velocity of the ball coming out of the quarterback's hand. It's just, it's it's a bad question. It's a bad question for a number of reasons. First of all, the timing is bad. It's not the right time to ask that question. Second of all, I feel like the question was designed uh, to show the coach and show the room how much, you know, how much, let me show you how much I know. And you'll sometimes get that in a news conference where a reporter will go, let me tell you how much I know. And there's not really a question in there. And I think, but I think it ends up being a good question for that reason, because it gives Dan Lanning a chance to show how human he is. Like he, he basically goes, I don't even know what you're talking about, which which everybody else is sharing that same sentiment in the news conference, and then allows him to kind of just say, hey, guy's a good player. Like, you know, and, and the fact of the matter is, like, Dan Lanning didn't coach Tyler Shuck. A lot of the players at Oregon, yeah, some of them are familiar with him, but a lot of them aren't familiar with him. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a reach, but it ends up being kind of entertaining because I think it lends some credibility and lends some insight into who Dan Lanning is. And... And frankly, how human he is as he's hearing this question coming out of left field about RPMs and proprietary information. Hell, can the kid play or not? I mean, that's, you know, you know next week, hey, you're going to play a player who played at Oregon. Advantage or disadvantage? You know, maybe that's the question. And by the way, that question should be asked probably on Sunday or Monday, not on Saturday in the wake of the Portland State beatdown. But I think it still ends up a value. And, you know, people will say there's no such thing as a dumb question. Nonsense. There is such a thing as a dumb question. I think that's a dumb question. But I also think there's value in a dumb question sometimes because it gives us all a chance to, uh, A, frame the good questions, and, B, also learn something about Dan Lanning. Like, I, I, I think Mark Helfrich would have handled that question a lot differently. He would have been very uh, stiff. He would have been more robot-like. He, you know, he wouldn't have been more of the real the humanity of Dan Lanning on display there, and I think part of that is why he's successful as a coach. So I'm glad the question was asked in a weird way. On that note, I want to talk a little bit about Mark Helfrich, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal. The era that came in the wake of Chip Kelly was a pivot point for Oregon. 
Helfrich will be on the call Saturday, tomorrow. He's going to be on the call of this game. It's going to be weird. Uh, you know, I'll see Mark Helfrich in the press box. But where did health go wrong at Oregon? I want to talk about it. Coming up. Mark Helfrich will be on the call as part of the Fox broadcast for tomorrow's Oregon-Texas Tech game. Is that weird? I don't know. I saw that, and I thought to myself, gosh, that's going to be awkward. That'll be an awkward moment. It's not like this is happening like a year after Helfrich got dismissed. He's been off to the NFL. He's been off to other stops after Oregon. And, uh, you know, Chicago Bears, he's with them. And uh, obviously has had a stint in television, but... It got me thinking kind of about the era after Chip Kelly and kind of where it went right, where it went wrong for Oregon. And, you know, have they officially righted the ship between Mario Cristobal and Dan Lanning? I mean, it's a question I think we have to unpack a little bit. But let's go back. Let's go back to the time when Oregon, you know, is coming off success with Chip Kelly. He decides he's going to leave for the Philadelphia Eagles. You got Mark Helfrich as the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. He's in, like, year three of that tenure, and the 2012 season ends, and Chip Kelly goes off to the Philadelphia Eagles. And a lot of people, I think, were banging the drum at the time for Mark Helfrich to become the head coach. And I think it made sense. See, I I don't think Oregon got it wrong when it decided to promote Mark Helfrich. I think, in part, Oregon got it wrong when it decided to promote Mark Helfrich but not recognize that he wasn't Chip Kelly. See, Chip Kelly, even when he took over as the Oregon head coach, he had never been a head coach before. He had been a play caller. He had been an assistant coach. He he had had this meteoric rise from New Hampshire and game planning against Delaware to suddenly game planning at Oregon against Ohio State in a Rose Bowl. And then, oh, by the way, you're you're the coach. And terrific success at Oregon because his system worked, his leadership worked, he found his way as a head coach. Oregon kind of found some direction and, and elevated what Rich Brooks and Mike Bellotti had 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 uh, you know built. And I think it's undeniable that that Oregon was well positioned when Chip Kelly left and went off to the NFL and the Philadelphia Eagles. And in fact, he left behind Marcus Mariota. And I think Marcus Mariota is a key player in this whole drama because if you don't have Marcus Mariota and he's not part of the future of Oregon football as Chip Kelly is leaving and going out the door. If you don't have Mark Helfrich essentially taking over a program that had all that momentum, all those assistant coaches who weren't going to the NFL that were going to stay behind, if you had all of that stuff, you know, leaving with Chip Kelly, if the entire staff was going to leave with Chip Kelly, if if you had, um, you know, no Marcus Mariota, who you know shows up at, in 2011 at Oregon? If you didn't have that kind of bridge to the future, then maybe you you consider a wholesale change of staff and a new head coach is going to bring their people in. But I don't blame Rob Mullins. I don't blame Phil Knight. I don't blame Pat Kilkenny. Um, you know, and the people that were all making the decisions at that time at Oregon, because Mark Helfrich offered the best opportunity for continuity. He had Marcus Mariota. Um, you had Nick Aliotti as your D coordinator. Um, you had, I think, real opportunity to to sort of accelerate and, and keep things going. And I guess the only question that I really have in hindsight is, did they hand the keys to the wrong coordinator? Nick Aliotti was the D coordinator. Should he have been made the head coach? Certainly a stronger leader, certainly a stronger personality, 
certainly somebody who was better with the media and better with boosters and all that other stuff, would Oregon football have been better off handing the keys in that era to Nick Aliotti? Or, or would it have risked losing Mark Helfrich to another program? That's a question. I wonder if Aliotti would have been the better bridge looking back. That's the only nitpicking that I can do of that decision because clearly the whoever was going to become head coach needed to come from within the staff. And when Aliotti leaves after the Alamo Bowl and retires in 2013, it I think it really hurt Helfrich from a leadership standpoint because Aliotti, I think, was doing a lot of the stuff that was public-facing, doing more of it certainly as the defensive coordinator, the face of the defense, assistant head coach, all that, than, than Helfrich wanted to do. And I think when he went out the door and Don Pelham got promoted to coordinator, it was clear, two things were clear. I don't think Don Pelham was a defensive coordinator. He was a position coach. And I don't think Mark Helfrich was a head coach. And I think he'd been hiding out a little bit behind Nick Aliotti and then ultimately behind Marcus Mariota, who took them to the national title game. But again, you know, we're, we're, we're nitpicking success at Oregon that resulted in Oregon winning the Pac-12 championship in 2014, won the North Division championship twice, um, you know, go to the national title game in 2015. And, you know, we're, I'm just, I, you know, I'm kind of unpacking this in a way that, like, where did it go wrong? Well, where it went wrong was, you know, Mark Helfrich, when Marcus Mariota was gone and when Nick Aliotti was gone and all of a sudden he was looking around going, okay, I'm on an island here as a head coach. I need to start making head coach-type decisions, which are CEO moves, that he wasn't equipped for it. He just wasn't a head coach. Every, every time I had him on for an interview, I recognized – He's not a CEO. He just wasn't. He never cast that appearance with me. I think Mark Helfrich was a super nice guy. I think he is a super smart guy. I think he knows football inside and out. I think he could go X and O and X and O with you on the back of a napkin all day long. I think he's a great play caller. I think he's a developer of quarterbacks. I think he would have been fine in that position at Oregon under any head coach and would have had massive success under any head coach. But when put alone as the head coach of a program, he couldn't carry it. He just couldn't carry it. And his whole thing when he took over, I can remember him saying this at the news conference. He just wanted to status quo, status quo. Just want to keep things the same. Wasn't going to change anything. Well, that's nice if your job is to just maintain until the resources run out. But if you really are leading a program, you've got to make some changes. You know, Chip Kelly changed the way Oregon practiced after Mike Bellotti left. And, you know, Mark Helfrich came in and said, I'll just do what Chip Kelly's do doing. But you're not Chip Kelly, and that's the problem there. And I think that became apparent. And it did set Oregon back. I mean, it, Justin Herbert's the guy that I keep thinking about because Herbert ends up playing for Mark Helfrich and then Willie Taggart and then Mario Cristobal. He has three different head coaches, has to have success in all the different systems with different play callers, goes off to the NFL, and, and maybe in some weird way it prepared – Herbert, for the chaos that the NFL can sometimes be with changes in coordinator, changes in head coach. I mean, it's kind of, he's already kind of encountered that with the Chargers. But I just think it was kind of a lost time and a lost period in Oregon football that we all know was really kind of unstable and shaky. And, you know, Willie Taggart came in and basically looked around and went, you know what, this is a stepping stone for me. And Mario Cristobal followed him, and I think Cristobal was grateful to have the job and, you know, did – did bring some stability finally to the program because I think in the transition from Helfrich to Taggart to Cristobal, the problem became how do you hold on to recruits and what is the direction of the program and how long is it going to take you to get all that back? 
knowing that you've lost momentum that had like decades and decades of assistant coaches that didn't turn over. You've lost all that. It's gone. And so, so I think Cristobal did. Like, if you look back, and I think the gift that Mario Cristobal gave to Oregon football was he brought stability back to Oregon football. He put Oregon football back in a position where it, it actually had kind of a stable feel to it uh, over several years. And then when he goes off to Miami, of course, I think there were a lot of people who looked and said, oh, he just used it. He used it as a stepping stone. Well, Oregon used him, too. And I think Oregon got something out of Mario Cristobal, got stability out of Mario Cristobal. Now, here comes Dan Lanning, right, in the wake of that. And again, I'm going to go back and make the comparison. The transition from Mario Cristobal to Dan Lanning reminds me a little bit of the transition from Rich Brooks to Mike Bellotti, or Mike Bellotti maybe to Chip Kelly. We'll see. That was a bit of an acceleration. But there's a step up that is happening from Cristobal to Lanning. It's clear. There's an investment, different kind of investment. Of course, you got NIL and transfer portal as part of the thing. But it just feels like Oregon is starting to accelerate again. And so I think when you look back, and maybe it'll be on display as you watch the broadcast from home, ask yourself this question. You're going to see Mark Helfrich on your TV screen on Fox. He's going to be talking about Oregon as he calls this game. And he'll probably talk about his time there in the 4-8 and eight season, you know, that uh, eventually uh, resulted in him being fired. Or, or maybe he'll talk about going to the Alamo Bowl and the Rose Bowl and the Alamo Bowl, and, and he won't talk about it at the end of things. But... I'd look back at it, and I think the reason that Mark Helfrich really struggled is he just tried to be Chip Kelly, and ultimately when Marcus Mariota left the program and yet you were on your own and Chip Kelly was four years removed, like you have a hard time imitating that. You have a hard time being that person. I just I think head coaches, like not all coordinators, we know that not all coordinators make great head coaches. Sometimes a coordinator is just a brilliant football mind, who is a great play caller, can adjust on the fly, and isn't at all a CEO. Chris Peterson said it earlier this week on that podcast with Wilner and I. He was talking about how the job changed so much, how much of the, the job became dealing with media, dealing with the potential for NIL and the transfer portal and all of this new calculus that was coming into being a coach and sucked all the joy out of it. And I really do think if Helfrich had just been left to be the play caller, Maybe Nick Aliotti is the head coach. I think that era would have gone a little, a lot differently. I still think they would have made the title game with Mariota in 2015. And I think, you know, could that staff still be there? I kind of wonder and think about that sometimes. All right, coming up, we have the 5 o'clock hour. The happy hour is ahead. We'll have the 5 at 5 and much more. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Leave it here. Well, you're in the happy hour. I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. And, yes, when I meet you, I know what you're going to say. I know you're going to say that your favorite part of the show is the part of the show where Anna joins the show. My feelings are not hurt by that. It's probably my favorite part of the show as well. I had somebody ask me, Anna, the uh, other day I was traveling to Salt Lake last week and then onto the Bay Area, and no offense to Judah and Steven, who are hosting, but somebody said, how come Anna doesn't guest host when you're out? Why isn't Anna interesting in, in guest hosting the show? Although Anna's not being paid to be here on the show in the first place. Why are why why not why not Anna guest hosting the show sometime? Oh, I'm paid all right. I'm paid in goodwill and uh, thank yous from you, I guess, from helping out and I'm Paid with the entertainment and amusement that comes with being part of a sports radio show that I really have no uh, place to be part of. So the thought of hosting a sports radio show, guest hosting it, 
for three hours is enough to make me want to crawl into a dark hole and into a fetal position and see you tomorrow because that is the, that's not my jam. This I'm just here for the for for the giggles and the you know what. I wrote a column today about Mark Helfrich and it was interesting, you know, and he'll be on the Fox broadcast tomorrow as Oregon plays at Texas Tech. That game kicks off at four o'clock on Fox. If you want to see Helfrich on TV, you're gonna you're gonna see Helfrich, just great mind. He's got a great football mind, right? But when he was elevated and promoted into the job of head coach at Oregon, it didn't quite work. Like there was a disconnect. Um, is it possible that you're better as the five at five person and the person who's just kind of jabbing me in the background and keeping me honest and maybe not as the primary driver of the show? Like you're the like you're a position coach or an offensive coordinator, or defense coordinator, but maybe not the head coach of the show. Yeah, I mean, I know my role. I, I could not sit here and talk about sports for three straight hours. I'm just here to uh, keep you accountable and keep you in check and uh, maybe speak to a different segment of the population, not so much about the intricacies of sports, but we will talk about things that are semi-sports related, as, as listeners will know from my Five at Five because they know it's not always the five most important stories in sports. It just happens to be the five stories that are somewhat sports-ish that caught my eye that I felt like other people might have a minimal level of interest in hearing about. Can we talk, just before we get to the five of five, a little bit about Helfrich? You read the piece this morning that I wrote and posted at johnconzano.com. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to walk a line here because I – like, selfishly, as a media member, of course, when I have Mark Helfrich on the show or interview him for a column, I want these revealing, candid moments where I could really get to know him and let listeners get to know him. And I always felt over the years when he came on the show, he was fine talking about football. He was, you know, smart talking about football. But if I asked him, like, you know, what did you get your wife for your, for the, your anniversary? You know, it would come up, hey, you had an anniversary the other day. You know, what do you, what do you guys do for an anniversary? Do you go out to dinner? Do you, he would go, ah, 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 like, he couldn't talk. And he was very uncomfortable in those public environments where he had to be more candid or revealing or, you know, share personal information. And yet, one-on-one -on -one with him, like, I liked the guy. And I thought he was a smart football coach. But I think it hurt him when it came to recruiting, connecting with fans, connecting with boosters. And I have to think in the 11th hour, as he goes 4-8 and eight in 2016, he needed those relationships. Like, you know, you don't need that when you're going 10 and 2. But when you're 4 and 8 in a bad season and you have 14 new starters and you have a bunch of injuries, you need that connective tissue that's around the head coaching position. Well, I mean, I respect people who want to maintain certain boundaries around their private lives and maybe aren't as comfortable, you know, sharing what's going on and or what they're getting their wives for an anniversary gift or whatever. But coaches, especially these days, they need a thing like we need to get to know you in some way. We may not have to know about your family or your personal life, but if that's not the thing that we know about you, then we need something else. Like not everybody can be a Nick Saban or a Bill Belichick or, you know, Roy Williams or one of these people where their personality itself is so over the top. Like I didn't know Bill Belichick wasn't married. I just heard today that he broke up with his longtime girlfriend. No one cares. But he's Bill Belichick. Like, we know who he is, 
because of his strong personality. Look at Kim Mulkey, Mulkey or whatever her name is at LSU, the basketball coach there. Like, we know her, not just from her, like, wild outfits, but she has a very distinct personality and character. And so when you see something like the Detroit Lions coach, Dan Campbell, goes into the locker room last night and gives his team this, like, brave heart-like victory speech, that's the kind of passion and personality that can work. Um, there are coaches who are more reserved and more quiet, um, but it's just got there's just just has to be something about you that we know that connects with fans. I think there's room in college football and even in pros for somebody who isn't necessarily an extrovert like that. But the, we we have to have some kind of defining quality about you that is more than just you know the the oz behind the curtain let me ask you because you understand marketing and pr and you understand media coach prime and what he's done at colorado clearly there is a recruiting halo effect to that what he's doing in a marketing element like he gets marketing like few others get it and that's part of the job of being a head coach now not everybody needs to be coach prime but you better at least be thinking in those terms well, and not everybody can be Coach Prime because what carries him is that sort of intrinsic spark and personality. So if somebody who simply doesn't have that character tries to put on that mantle, then it looks even worse because it's not authentic. But, like, it's a shame to me that with Mark Helfrich, as brilliant as he was and as nice of a person as he was, the only thing for me as a casual sports fan, pseudo-sports fan, that I remember – from his time as a coach and his personality was the exchange that he had with the one kid from the school who was talking about what goes on at his school. And it's like Jesus, girls, and Marcus Mariota. The exchange that he had with that kid was so sweet and authentic and genuine. But, like, there should be more than that that I remember from his tenure at Oregon. I even remember a, a, a time, you know, I wrote about this, occasion in which I was in Spokane covering the Ducks in the NCAA tournament today, and and I pass Helfrich on the street, and he's got his kid hanging off of his arm, and he's on the phone, he's trying to make a work call, and he kind of gives me this look like, you know, you get it, you're a parent, you know, and, and we all understand that, you know, there are times when I'm trying to do work things, and the kids are, like, climbing all over me, or they're being loud in the background, we all get that, but it was very relatable. Um, earlier, a day earlier, he checks into the hotel. He happened to be at the same hotel that the media was staying at, okay? And we were in the lobby, and we were kind of as a group heading out to get something to eat. I think some of the other beat reporters were there and whatnot were standing there. Helfrich comes through the door with his family. He had a horrified look on his face when he saw me, and he saw us. And I don't think it was just me. He just, it was awkward, oh, this is my family life, it's compartmentalized, and suddenly... I'm in front of the media contingent that covers the University of Oregon. It should have been, I can't imagine like Jonathan Smith or Dan Lanning or Mario Cristobal or I can't imagine Coach Prime in that situation. It was just all over Helfrich's face. He was not comfortable and it was kind of an awkward, hey, hey, you know, and it wasn't like this is my family, meet me as a real person. He really, I do think, wanted to compartmentalize his family life from his work life and I figured that out very early on radio. You can't do it. You can't fake your way through it. People see it. You just sort of, and, you know, my family ends up on the show. You end up on the show. I, I don't think you can fake your way through it. I think boundaries are good, but I don't think you can fake your way through that. 
No, I disagree. I think there's a room in the media world, um, college, and pro sports for people to have private lives. And I don't think that their families need to be front and center. Um, it's great, you know, that we know who Dan Lanning's wife is and a little about her story and that he's got three boys. I mean, that's great. But I don't think every football coach at any level has to be comfortable with sharing all of that. I think it's okay. But I guess my question back to you is, is there room in sports for an introvert to be a head coach these days? I wonder from a recruiting standpoint if you could pull that off. And I do think there are coaches, there are examples of coaches who who draw boundaries. Like Jonathan Smith, he doesn't advertise, come on social media, come on radio shows talking about his wife. He doesn't. He's talked on our show about it, about how they met their first date. You know, they went they went to some, I can't even remember the restaurant. It was like some uh, ridiculous restaurant, like an Applebee's that they went on their first date to. You know, it. but it's like he, he will talk about it if you ask him about it. He's not uncomfortable to that extent, but he's not in your face with it. But I do think it's very difficult for an introvert in today's world with NIL, Transfer Portal, and recruiting being so in your face. Like, how do you recruit if you're an introvert? I, that's just not... That's not part of the game, and I do think Mark Halfridge is an introvert, and and he's on television. We're going to see him tomorrow on TV as an introvert, and that's fine because as an analyst, he's able to talk in great depth about what he sees, and I think he would make a terrific coordinator. I think that's the crying shame is I think he not only got fired, I think he got kind of pushed out of college football and, and you know went to work for Fox right after getting fired at Oregon. Then went to the Chicago Bears in the NFL, got fired there. Now he's back at Fox. I just kind of think like somebody in the Pac-12 should have hired him a while ago to be offensive coordinator. And I'm surprised Chip Kelly hasn't brought him to UCLA. All right, on that note, we're going to pivot to the five biggest, baddest stories in sports. Anna's got them. It is the five at five. The five at five. Okay, Anna, the number one story as you see it. Okay, I got to know what you guys think about this. Uh, Mike Tirico, after the Detroit Lions upset Kansas City last night, said that the win for Detroit would have an asterisk next to it because Kansas City didn't have Chris Jones or Travis Kelsey available for the game. Jones, because of a contract dispute, Kelsey out because of a knee injury, I, I'm really curious to see what what people think about this. Does does a win like that without those key elements on the Chiefs' side mean that this win for Lions has an asterisk? Look, I addressed this right off the top of the show today. It's ridiculous to me that people are not classifying something as a win because it came against an opponent that is dealing with an injury. Um, look, it's not full strength against full strength. We don't have one set of standings for teams that are skating at full strength. They're playing at full strength. They're operating with, you know, the pitcher on five days of rest. Like, that's not a thing. It's wins and losses. It's the scoreboard that you're judged by ultimately. You know, the Detroit Lions had to deal with similar circumstances. They had players who were banged up during training camp, lost, off-season transactions. I mean, what's next? Are we going to look and go, hey, you know, the Green Bay Packers should have uh, asterisks by uh, all their losses because they don't have Aaron Rodgers this season? Like, that's just ridiculous to me. It's bad thinking. Uh, look, the Chiefs 
go to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl, get to the AFC title game every year. Uh, they, they've earned their success, but let's not give them a free pass when it comes to a poor performance on uh, a Thursday night. They were clearly a different team without Travis Kelsey, and maybe he instills confidence in Patrick Mahomes. Maybe Mahomes is looking around in the huddle and doesn't have his go-to guy there, but you know they couldn't do anything right. Give him a loss, give the Lions the win, and move on. It was earned by the Lions. Okay, then number two is related, and I want to know what you think about this. So the Chiefs receiver, Kadarius Tony, am I saying his name right, Kadarius? Uh, he, I, I mean, I feel so bad for him. He had a terrible game, no way around it. He finished the game with one catch for one yard, and one rush for a loss. And so obviously fans were just going at him on, on Twitter, you know, X, whatever. I, I'm not used to calling it X yet. Like to the point where he actually is going ghost. He deactivated his account after the game. I don't, I don't know what his team will think about that. I don't know how much thought he, you know, went into that decision. Um, I, and I know Twitter is just this cesspool where people spew hate. So, in a way, I, I don't blame him, but actually just fully going away. I feel bad for him in one respect, in that social media can be cruel. And some of the tweets that were tweeted at him were people like, uh, you know, tweeting. I'm going to read a couple of them. One guy tweeted, Kadarius Tony is going to claim his hands were hacked. Uh, another tweet that uh, came from Mina Kimes says, The Chiefs' offense is like a jam band, giving all 15 musicians an extended solo. The tambourine? Sure. Harmonica. Man, you're next. And next up on the trombone, it's Kadarius Tony. Um, also, Shannon Sharp. WTF is Tony doing tonight? He's been awful. Social media can be a cruel place. Tony's a professional, though, and he's being paid for his performance on the field. It comes down to just not show friends, but I do kind of wonder about the optics of deleting the account versus maybe just going dark. It, it kind of shows something when you delete the account and you run away. I just uh, I think he should have just gone dark and not picked up his phone or delete the app off your phone. Don't delete the actual account the day after you drop a bunch of passes. That's a bad. Isn't that a bad look? I think it is. I mean, it's like we're all talking about it which is even more problematic it's like kind of taking your ball and going home but on a human level i i people i don't know like i'm not i'm not comfortable with that level of criticism and maybe i'm just i'm too soft here but i don't know give him a break okay number three let's move on um this is going to be short and sweet but uh it's the second straight world cup uh, in basketball, that Team USA has not made the final. They were eliminated by Germany yesterday, and uh, I I don't know. I don't know how big of a deal this is. Um, NBA, you know, we had that discussion last week about whether the NBA, you know, title winners are really considered world champions. Uh, that track runner got his 15 minutes of fame talking about that. Um, just trying to figure out if can you put this in perspective? Yeah, well, you, the fact that you had to say World Cup in basketball puts it in perspective for American sports fans. We're not going to view this as like the World Cup of soccer or the NBA finals. 
Um, Anthony Edwards, uh, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Jaron Jackson, Paolo Banchero, uh, all on this team, and Austin Reeves on this team. Like, it's not the best of the best of the best from us. And, you know, this is what we get when we don't bring our best to the world stage. Instead, it'll be Germany advancing to play Serbia in the uh, World Cup final and not us, and we'll be left out. I don't know. If it's that much of an embarrassment, though, for Americans, because I think people just don't view that as kind of a big thing. What are we on? What are we on? Number four? Number four. Yep. So uh, LSU head coach Kim Mulkey, I mentioned her earlier. She is now taking on the title of highest paid women's basketball coach in college history. She's agreed to a $32 million deal. Uh, interesting. She just signed with the Tigers back in 2021. She really hasn't been with LSU that long, but, you know, she did happen to take them to a championship last year. Um, and she obviously has a tremendous history uh, at Baylor. She had three championships over the course of her 21-year-long career at Baylor. So there she is. Uh, congratulations to the woman with really interesting outfits. And um, I don't know. We saw her in person, and I, 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 I'm glad. I guess I'm happy for her. She's gonna make a lot of money, but seeing her in person uh, was a little bit breathtaking. She's just kind of mean. We saw her at the Maui Classic or the Maui Invitational. Oregon State was playing LSU in that game, and it, she's a bully. Uh, plain and simple, she's a bully. But she is a beneficiary of a transfer portal NIL world where if you are with the Haves and you have the brand, and you have her ability to recruit. She has a name. She has a personality. She is fierce. She's a competitor. She's just not my style. She's loud. She's in your face. Um, I much prefer the focus to be on the players on the court. I think her team, her LSU team, deserved the credit for what you know she did. But um, this is also a sign, too, because you're seeing at the escalation of coaching salaries in women's college basketball. It's just a sign that I think the universities are recognizing that the new TV deal, that the NCAA Women's Tournament is going to have its own TV deal now, not, you know, the rights were normally the men's tournament. It's going to separate from the men's tournament. There's going to be additional dollars there, and I think you're going to see some of these universities investing it in head coaches. The LSU program last year, as they went on to win the national title, had a budget of about $9 million. When you compare that to the budgets of some of those other schools, like in the Pac-12, you're talking about $3 million, $4 million, it's evident, like South Carolina, I think their budget was around $8 million. So it's it's uh, evident that you got to spend money in women's college basketball to win. It's you know We always think about football and men's basketball, but the salaries of the women's college basketball coaches, they are about to be inflated. The number five story, as you see it. Oh, this poor ball boy. So <laughs> the Marlins ball boy made a terrible mistake on Thursday night. Uh, Miami was hosting the Dodgers, and at the top of the sixth inning, a Marlins ball boy, uh, oh, you know, just casually took a fair ball and threw it in the grandstand. So one out, a runner on first, Dodgers first baseman Freddie Freeman uh, hits one down the right field line. The ball boy apparently thought the ball was foul and fielded the ball and threw it to a fan. <laughs> So all the players are just standing there in disbelief. 
and he realizes the error that he's just committed. He basically says, my bad, as the umpires talk about how to rule the play. Uh, Freeman was given a ground rule double and an RBI that made the score 4-0, and that poor ball boy uh, just probably wanted to disappear. Like, ah, that's just, you can't, you can't do that, man. You can't take a fair ball and just throw it into the grandstand. Like, like his face, it was one of those Southwest Airlines want to get away moments. They should take that. I saw it. I tweeted it. If you want to see it, it's on my Twitter feed at John Canzano BFT. But just a bad moment. He's spitting his chew into his little cup. He's just trying to disappear. And his eyes are so big. He's just, it's one of those moments where you realize that you have made a horrific, horrific mistake. Um, that's it. Terrific five at five. I was a little surprised that the lawsuit didn't make the uh, five at five, but I've, I've talked about it earlier in the show. Um, and beyond the fact that Oregon State and Washington State are suing the Pac-12 conference, I think we all kind of expected that would happen at some point. Oregon State, Washington State suing the Pac-12 conference. They're taking them to court over the board makeup, voting rights, control of assets. Um, John Wilner of the Mercury News broke the story earlier today, but uh, that uh, is obviously going to probably consume lawyers' legal fees. Do the lawyers win? I guess the lawyers win, and maybe Oregon State and Washington State themselves win. But Anna, great five at five. Uh, I like the, uh, the range of it. Good job. Yeah, it's like a it's like a full meal, you know. You got to have your meat and potatoes, and a little bit of vegetable and a little dessert. You don't want to host the show though. You don't want to be the full time host, like guest host of the show. And by the way, when if you guest host the show, you're like sometimes you're with me when I'm not able. Like I'm on vacation. Do you want like to the person who said Anna should be guest hosting the show when I'm on vacation? Do you realize we're married? Anna goes on the vacation with me. Yeah, so I'll just be in the hotel room guest hosting the show while you are sunbathing. That that would work out really well. All right. I want you to leave it here. Up next, we're going to visit with Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor. We're going to talk about Oregon and Texas Tech and Oregon State's grand reopening of Reeser Stadium. All that's still ahead. There's nobody better on the Oregon Ducks than our next guest, Tyson Alger. You can read him at the I-5 Corridor. He has been in and around and on that beat for long time Tyson how long have you been like technically around that beat your start like the first couple games you covered the the very first Oregon football game I covered was the first game of Marcus Mariota's Heisman season so 2014 all right I got on a, I got on at a good point it was it was it was a nice nice time to join the beat <laughs> let's look at Mariota I was thinking about this uh, earlier in the week on the show I was looking at Justin Herbert Marcus Mariota Joey Harrington Achilles Smith Dan Fouts Chris Miller I was trying to figure out where Bo Nix is going to end up in that hierarchy. Transfer quarterback who comes in, has a really good season last year, you know, could have could have a Heisman type season this year. Where where what's what's Bo Nix? Where does he fit in Oregon's history at that position? Yeah, I I think he's got potential to to really carve himself out a unique spot in there because he's the modern 2023 quarterback, the guy who came over in the transfer portal and you know, while at most he's going to be here two years, I, I think it, depending on the success of this season, it, it could be it could be up there with with Marcus, with with Justin, and with all those other greats. Because I think when you look at the situation that Bo came into, this this was right after Mario Cristobal left. It was right as 
uh, Oregon was in the, oh, here we go again with rebuilding. And the fact that he came in, he put up the best season of his career, and he's really kind of embraced, like, his role as the starting quarterback of the Oregon Ducks. Like, he's he's as, like, he's as earnest and uh, modest as, you know, the, the Herberts and Marcuses before him. But he really does seem to enjoy um, or at least – find comfort in, in kind of the spotlight a bit. Like, I think he was a perfect guy for the billboard because he's going to say all the right things while also not shy away from being in that spotlight. So, you know, if, if they go on and, and post a 10-11 win season this year and, and Bo puts together a, a season similar to last year, if not better, um, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think people are talking about him 10, 15, 20 years from now here around Oregon. Yeah, and I think, you know, so much of it hinges on this season for him, different ball game with NIL. And obviously, he's one of like eight transfers who are going to start games this weekend. But you know, what did you make of the the twelve and zero start from the Pac twelve? Like, this is a conference that couldn't do anything right all spring, all summer, and then football kicked off, and they were perfect. It just kind of figures, right? I mean, this is it, it's just funny that we talked a lot this off season about hey, this could be a good year for the Pac twelve. We have all the quarterbacks coming back, and how it. That felt very simplistic, but for the fact for them to actually go into week one or week week zero and week one and to put together a, a undefeated uh, slate so far against pretty quality competition, um, I think it just kind of further exemplifies how stupid this whole realignment thing is. If, if you have a great conference over here when things are clicking, uh, the national spotlight has been on the West Coast throughout the first two weeks of the football season. Um, and I think it just shows what we already know in that, that there's – a handful of pretty darn good football teams in the past well this year. But also, I, I think the basement has, has really risen as well. I mean, you can just take a look at Colorado for that. Oregon plays at Texas Tech tomorrow. Lubbock, Texas, 4 o'clock Pacific time on Fox. Uh, I asked Bruce Barnum about this game. He thinks Oregon is going to beat Texas Tech by double digits. I'm going that way as well. I picked it 42-20. Am I crazy, Tyson, for, for picking Oregon in a blowout? No, not at all. I, I think Oregon is locked in. I, I think this team is going to be firing under that Will Stein offense. I, tra- uh, sorry, Texas Tech looked awfully awfully average in their loss to Wyoming last week. And while I do uh, look forward to seeing uh, Tyler Shuck throw the ball, former Oregon starter who has a really nice family who, who put a lot of time and effort into their time in Oregon, I just think Oregon's defense is going to be hounding. Um, this is a good test for Oregon's kind of rebuilt secondary, but I, I think the Ducks are going to put up a lot of points in this game. I just don't think Tech's going to be able to manage to hang. But the one interesting thing is it's going to be a sellout down there, uh, so it will be interesting to see how the Ducks respond to that type of road environment. But also this is the majority of this team opened up last season in Atlanta against Georgia, so uh, this, is, this isn't quite at that level. So... Uh, I, I think you're well within your right to expect uh, a, a pretty comfortable Oregon win in this one. Dan Lanning, all week long, have you gotten a sense from him talking about the game, whether the questions for Oregon are on the defensive side, on the offensive side? Where does his focus seem to be? Uh, Lanning's focus is always on the next day ahead or the next play or the next practice. He's, he's the most robotic coach in that sense, and that's completely fine. I think it works for him, and obviously – you saw a very, very focused team uh, against Portland State on, on Saturday. But, uh, you know, I, I think you'd like to see a little bit of more pressure from the front seven. Um, but, I mean, just the, the efficiency of the offense, I, I was really, really impressed with. And, you know, you got to 
consider the level of competition they played up against. But I think just for everything that you wanted for week one, the Ducks saw it, and, and moving into week two, I think just situational football, the fact that Oregon limited its penalties, I think that's going to be a huge factor for them going into this road environment. Mark Helfrich will be on the call for the Fox broadcast team on this game. And I've been wrestling with this uh, today. Uh, I've been thinking about Helfrich and thinking about his tenure. And what are your thoughts? when? Because you covered the guy. What are your thoughts about the Mark Helfrich era of Oregon football? Whenever I think of Mark Helfrich, I can't get this vision out of my head of it was before the national championship game. It was Urban Meyer and Mark Helfrich on the same podium. Uh, it was the first day of media there, and it was just it just felt like this like meteoric rise for this assistant coach. Like it, it felt like Helfrich was going to be talked about in kind of that echelon of coaches, and it still just baffles me how quickly it all fell apart. And you know, I, I think uh, in the time that's passed, you you have seen some of the necessary moves from Oregon as a program that it wasn't necessarily getting in that, you know, kind of the, the transition into just going all in on recruiting. But I think ultimately, like, Helfrich gets a pretty bad rap. Like, this guy, if you look at his win-loss record, he's won, like, 70% of his games as a head coach and went to a national championship game, yet he was kicked out of town two years later. So, um I I I have a lot of respect for Mark. He was the first first Division One football coach I got to cover, and he he treated us relatively well. And I would really like to see at some point um, them welcome him back into Eugene, or just like you know mention him. You know, it's uh, we're, we're going to be coming up on ten years here next next year of, the, of that 2014 football team, and I would really like to see Mark involved in some sort of celebration or recognition that program. He was a really good coach. Like I, you know, I want to talk about football coach quarterback coach, offensive coordinator, really good. I didn't ever really buy him as the CEO of the program. And and I've I've wondered for a while that about that. And you know, and I wonder if you can coach that type of thing. Like could they have gotten him and made him better with media or made him better with boosters or better in making big decisions. But I, I get why they promoted him. They were they were seeking continuity. Yeah, but I mean, with with the success that Oregon had, like you didn't want to mess with anything there. I mean, the, the Ducks were coming off their most successful four-year run in program history, and Helfrich was riding shotgun for the vast majority of that. Like it made sense, and all. Uh, I, I don't think anyone should fault Rob Mullins for making that hire back in 2013 when it happened. But um, you know, we've been around this long enough to know like head coaches are just different animals, man. And and I'm not saying that some people have it and some people, but it just works for some people and it doesn't work for others. And, um, I, I, I get more of the vibe from Dan Lanning as like, this guy wants to just completely run a program more than I did from Mark Helfrich. We're talking to Tyson Alger, i5corridor.com. If you want to check out his work, Oregon, uh, going to Lubbock, Texas to play Texas Tech. Let's uh, let's sort of assess from twenty thousand feet, Tyson. You know, a win in this game versus a loss in this game. How much does that change Oregon's goals for the season, trajectory, perception in your mind? Win versus loss. Uh, a win in this game will keep everything going as it's expected. I, I think with this roster and and just you kind of get a feeling around this program that they think they have the chance to do something special this year. So I, I think it'll be expectation, and that just continues the. 
the flight towards, I, I think it's Pac-12 title game or bust, or, or if not more for this team. Uh, a loss would be really tough to come come back from. I, I mean, it doesn't really damper what you're going to do in the Pac-12, but this is an Oregon team that really wants to be in the national conversation, uh, especially here in the final year of the Pac-12. Like, I, I think it would be such such a, a boost for Oregon's overall rep and, and just status to be the last remaining Pac-12 team. And I'm sure the Big, Big Ten would love welcoming in Oregon with, with both arms as the Pac-12 champion. So, um, yeah, I, I think a loss would uh, kind of really deflate the sales there in terms of uh, going for a playoff chance, especially with Texas Tech's loss to Wyoming last week. But I'm, I'm not terribly worried about it, John. I think Oregon's going to roll in this thing. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way. I, I also am looking at Dan Lanning, and I'm going, look, he, he had some tests last season. He had a test against Oregon State and lost. He had a test against Washington and he lost. Passed the test against Utah. And so I kind of feel like this is an opportunity, even though Texas Tech lost to Wyoming, it's a road game against a Big 12 team that was supposed to win like seven games. And, you know, this is a game Oregon should go in there and, and win the game and, and walk away feeling pretty good about itself. Yeah, this, this reminds like this, this has the feel to it to me of a lot of those 20, kind of those Chip Kelly years where you are still facing some decent opponents, but you kind of just expect that Oregon team to go in and win by two or three touchdowns. And if this Oregon team is as good as they think they are, like you said, Texas Tech, they're, they're, a, they're a decent, maybe above-average football team, and the level of that Oregon thinks they are, they should dominate those those teams, especially with the talent the, talent the Ducks got, got. So I that's that's where I'm leaning on this one. I want you to rubberneck a little bit on Oregon State's game. They're, they're going to be at Research Stadium reopening the stadium, the renovation. They get UC Davis. Um, should be a win. They should go to to two and zero. But um, you know what? What do you think that atmosphere is going to be like at Reeser? And and you know, stadium wise, what is it? What does it do to Oregon State's perception or, or brand to have that stadium be com- finally complete? Yeah, thank thank God they got the thing done before the the conference blew up because I, I know they still owe some money on that thing, but it's kind of hard to. Uh to take a stadium back so at least it's up and i went to the tour a couple weeks ago and they just like they did the right perfect job for for what it should be in corvallis it's a really well done stadium there, there's just so much thought put into just all all the areas whether it's just the regular seating to the club seating to a, a really nice press box i'm looking forward to that for the first time i'm looking forward to actually going to cover games at reeser and, and not freezing my butt off in, in that press box but it's it's a stadium where the fans feel right up on top of you. It's not too large. And the fact that they have a really, really good football team, I, I just think it's going to be a, a party on Saturday. I think it should be a celebration of Oregon State football. I think it should be the acknowledgement of where Jonathan Smith has been able to bring them back to. Obviously, they're not quite to where they want to be, but the fact that they've gotten to this point, the fact that they have like a star in the making, that quarterback in DJU, um, I think it's going to be a fun blowout win for them on Saturday. I think rightfully kind of kicks off uh, a, a new era of football. You know, it's um, it's a prediction that I don't feel like I'm crawling out very far in the limb, but I think the Civil War football game is going to determine who goes to Las Vegas. And I, I think Oregon State is good enough to go to Vegas, and I think Oregon is good enough to go to Vegas. But I, I don't know if both of them can get there unless a bunch of screwy things happen. But, you know, that would be really fun to see a rematch in Vegas since we may and they may not play again. Do you think they should play, Tyson? Do you think Oregon State should turn to Oregon and go, you know what, we'll still play you even though you're leaving? Or where where do you stand on that debate? 
Oh, man. Like, I, ideally, I would love to, to see it, but also I, I think Oregon State is well within its right to just, I, I say give them a year or two to just, you know, take a breath, see where they're at, and assess their feelings. Because I, I think, um, you know, especially if it's a situation where the, the financials between the two programs are that far apart, you know, it, it's going to be signing up to, to fight Goliath every year uh, for the Beavers if, if it, there's just that much to see. But I just think there's too much history. And when we get down to it, the logistics are it's just going to be a close road game for both teams. And, and I think that's uh, going to be a useful thing to have uh, where people are flying across the country for everything. So um, I say take a year or two off, let everyone kind of simmer down, calm down, and then, uh, and then reopen discussions. I, I wonder, too, if Oregon State's going to need those games. Like, if they do stay a Pac-2 conference and they say, look, we're going to stay here, harvest the assets, and we're going to just uh, barnstorm and play as many non-conference games as we possibly can. Maybe they play Washington State twice. I don't know what, what ends up happening with that. But if they do that, they might need that game against Oregon. Oregon might welcome it. So we'll see what happens there. Um, all right, so uh, we will catch up with you. I know you've got coverage of the uh, games over the weekend. Look for it at i5corridor.com. And, Tyson, we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks a ton, John. And there he goes, Tyson Alger, uh, who I think is fantastic on that beat. You're looking for Ducks beat coverage. Read Tyson. All right, uh, coming up, some parting thoughts. I'll give you my final, final, final thoughts on week two of the college football season. That's next. Well, this show has been a lot of fun. We had Anthony Gold, the Oregon State wide receiver, on in hour one. We had a conversation, or you heard a conversation, between Ryan Thorburn, who works in Casper, Wyoming. He covers the Wyoming beat. I talked with him in hour two. We uh, we talked about Mark Helfrich uh, at some length on today's show. He'll be on the Fox broadcast. Um, look, really smart guy, great football mind. I, I hope Helf is doing well. I also am well aware that, uh, you know, if things had gone differently, he might still be the coach at Oregon. He might have been a forever guy at the University of Oregon, and here he is, stuck on Saturday calling the Oregon-Texas Tech football game. Uh, if you want to read my column on Mark Helfrich, you can read it at johnconzano.com. Also, we got a visit from Tyson Aldrew, who was fantastic just a few minutes ago, talking about uh, his I-5 corridor project, which includes coverage of Oregon and Oregon State, uh, among other things. Uh, we got college football in full swing, a full slate of games in the Pac-12 tomorrow. I think we're going to find out a lot about the conference, probably more about the conference than we learned in week one, if we're being real. We did get a glimpse at Colorado in week one. I don't think we learned a lot about Oregon in week one. I think we, we got a look at Oregon State in week one to some extent. But I think week two, you've got seven Power Five conference uh, opponents in in non-conference games, playing against Pac-12 teams. So the undefeated Pac-12 conference playing seven Power 5 conference opponents uh, in tomorrow's games. That starts with Colorado-Nebraska in the morning and, of course, Utah-Baylor in the morning. So keep an eye on those games. How long will the Pac-12 stay undefeated? That's something to keep an eye on. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group had the news of the day uh, in the Pac-12 conference uh, you know, of course, Oregon State and Washington State are hung up with, uh, you know, what they do next. But uh, it now appears that what they do next is they sue. They have lawyered up. They are suing the Pac-12 conference. They would like to get uh, voting rights. They want the assets that are remaining in the conference. This is a big, big deal. It is a big story. 
the presidents at Washington State, Oregon State, taking the Pac-12 to court in order to gain clarity on voting rights, and they want control of the assets. Now, they're the only remaining members of the Pac-12, and for people who have wondered, why don't they just walk away? Why don't they just give up? Well, this is why. They have filed a joint complaint in Whitman County Superior Court. Uh, they are seeking to determine the makeup of the board of directors following the departures of 10 schools. Pac-12 and Commissioner George Klyovkov are, are named as defendants. Um, Washington State's Kirk Schultz and Oregon State's Jyothi Murthy are not attempting to punish any of the outgoing schools or prevent them from leaving. They not, they're not trying to stop them from leaving for the ACC, Big 12, or Big 10, but they do want declaratory judgment from the court regarding the makeup of the board of directors, which has the voting authority and control of the conference's finances. Cougars and Beavers are considering what they do next. Do they rebuild the Pac-12? Do they just go and accept relegation to the Mountain West? This is an important step here um, for people who uh, are, have wanted to see people deposed. Well, here you go. And the Pac-12 bylaws, it was really interesting. As I, as I looked at the Pac-12 bylaws, what I got and what I learned from the Pac-12 bylaws was that they, they had never really considered or planned for the idea of a total dismantling of the conference. Like nobody, it's like it, it, didn't, it didn't cross their mind when they put together the bylaws or at any subsequent part, you know, juncture did they go, hey, what happens if we all go separate ways? Like this was not part of their, of their thinking. Uh, the stakes here are high. You've got, you know, if the court determines that the 10 outgoing schools retain board of directors status until their departures, they could form a voting block that dictates terms to Washington State and Oregon State. But if uh, Washington State and Oregon State uh, get this restraining order and they have requested a hearing for Monday and they hope that the restraining order will be issued uh, before the scheduled board meeting on Wednesday of next week. But uh, if um, if they believe uh, if Oregon State and Washington State get control of this thing, it could be very interesting now. Earlier this week, Washington State's president and Oregon State's president sent a letter to George Klyovkov and the 10 other presidents expressing concern that um, the, uh, the commissioner's office um, and the board, you know, don't represent the conference anymore. Like, you know, that if, if basically expressing concern that board members of the other 10 departing schools are still going to be allowed to participate in board meetings. Now, keep in mind... USC and UCLA were not allowed to participate in board meetings and, and be part of the conference uh, discussion and, and, and give input prior to, to the, uh, you know, the total dismantling of the Pac-12 conference that happened after Oregon and Washington and every, the four corner schools broke away. So keep in mind that there's a precedent here that Oregon State and Washington State are trying to point toward and get... Uh, and seek uh, their path forward. I think this is a uh, good move by Oregon State and Washington State. They want clarity. They want control. Let's see if they get it. I think it's going to be really interesting to pay attention to that. Beyond that, we've got football taking place this weekend. Oregon State's going to beat UC Davis big. I think uh, no doubt there that they're going to open the home stadium. I think uh, Oregon State will uh, basically put on a festival that highlights and features all the new amenities and their new stadium. I think if you're going to that game, uh, be really curious on Monday to get your feedback on what you thought of the stadium. In Oregon, traveling to Texas Tech, um, I will be there to write a column off that game. I'll have full coverage of both games at johnconzano.com. But I think it's just going to be really interesting to see a Dan Lanning team 
in a game that is a test. It's a road game against a Power 5 opponent in some hostile uh, environment. Uh, throw it in there, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that. All right, I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show possible. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. I want you to have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll catch you on Monday with another BFT.